In a world where this podcast has been around for seven years, I bring to you this seventh anniversary edition of the Geek Roulette Podcast. Technically, about the four-year anniversary of it, seven years if we consider its original incarnation as the Burning Bridges Podcast, which we recorded seven years ago today, John. Today? Wow. I don't think I wasn't there for the inaugural episode of. You were there for the second one. You were there for the second one. I recorded the first one and then we recorded the second one, you know, and then I released those within like the first week. The first one was officially broadcast on July 5th, 2016. Your birthday. Happy birthday. Dude, security, security information. Now they know my birthday. Ah, oh, I'm getting identity thefted so know. hard. So, so hard. I'll have to guess the year, though. Oh, no, you're going to probably give it away at some point. 1978. Ah, uh, <laughs> Suckers. Hey, folks, guess what? It is the Geek Roulette podcast, not just a normal Geek Roulette podcast. This is a supersized Geek Roulette podcast. It's going to be supersized? Yes, we're going to have that Morgan Spurlock guy listen to it for like 30 days and see what it does <laughs> to his only health. only thing he's going to do, and it's going to probably make his head explode. Most likely, indeed. Uh, supersized episode, reminisce about some of the things about the podcast over the past several years. And then we are going to discuss Quentin Tarantino in his movies. Ooh. Oh, yeah. And John's internet's still horrible in the boondocks. It is. Hey, it wouldn't be a Geek Roulette podcast if my internet didn't suck or I hadn't seen some of the movies that we were going to talk about. Yeah, that's going to be part of the problem there. But, you know, first and foremost, let's go over housekeeping. Hey, guys, Facebook, Twitter, who knows? Maybe maybe I'll release, like, uh, another, like, different one. Like, uh, what would be another good, maybe an OnlyFans. We can have an OnlyFans. I mean, or so, whatever it ends up replacing twitter since that seems to be exploding lately (laughs) come on we've been talking about twitter exploding for about a year or so we have but it seems like he's put on the stepped on the gas on that one but you know i don't do anything on twitter so i don't really care well listen it's okay if it explodes as long as this podcast doesn't implode oh i'm just gonna throw this right out here right now um Guess what? If you build your own submarine and you try going and looking at the Titanic and you're a bunch of rich people, I'm not probably going to care about what's going on with you guys. If anything, way to go, Ocean. We have the Ocean to score. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, but if you're stupid enough to give a guy who like is openly saying that safety rules are stupid and why do we have to follow them, if you're stupid enough to give him 250 grand to get in like, you know, a bathtub with some duct tape on it to go, you know, thousands of feet below the ocean, then when you're no, using I, a Logitech video game remote to pilot yeah. your, you know, boat, maybe it wasn't meant to work. Yeah, I mean, you I, make smart choices. You know, like my, like my wife tells the kids all the time, make good choices. Now, apparently, he's made like I guess dozens of other trips down without incident, but I don't know. That was just tempting fate at this point. I mean, just 
again, that seems like, especially like, I think the thing I hated the most about this is all the coverage that James Cameron got because of him going down to the Titanic and, well, this is what I think was the problem right here. And it's like, dude, you're just equally as much of a douchebag as these guys. Plus, most of your movies actually suck. I mean, if you take Aliens and Terminator out of the equation, I really don't give two shits about any of his movies. Yeah, I mean... Yes, he's a douchebag, but at least like when he went down to look at the Titanic, he like did it right. Like I mean, I, they like they showed some side by side shots of like you know his little underwater thing to go see it, and it's all high tech, and there's buttons and you know panels and instruments telling him all sorts of God only knows what. And then you look at the inside of theirs, and it's basically just like the inside of an unfinished bathroom with a flat screen TV hanging on the side of the wall. But I still look at it in the sense, what are you getting from this? Oh, look at the. Med- the majesty of failure, a boat that sank, Woo, boat that sank. I mean, you're spending like millions and millions of dollars to go down there when I think that millions of dollars probably could have been used so much better for so many other things. Oh, you're just jealous you can go down to the Titanic. Mm, pegged it in one. Total jealous. Yeah, I mean, if I had 250 grand to blow on something stupid, I don't think it would be that. There's probably quite a bit more I could think of that I would spend my 250 grand on. I, I like to think before the, that sub exploded that somebody there farted inside that sub and it just lingered there. And you just can't get rid of it at that point. That, that's what that's what killed them was somebody clawing on the thing and broke through the half-inch right. panel and just blew the whole thing up. Right. So, uh, yeah, before we uh, – so we, normally we do two things here. We're going to do usually recommendations. And then we do our arbitrary list. I'm going to save the arbitrary list to the end of the episode because we're going to discuss and rank Quentin Tarantino's movies. So that's coming later. We'll do the recommendations maybe in just a few minutes or so. Let's let's talk about this. Because I remember when I first started recording this podcast seven years ago, it was like on a Yeti, you know, blue mic that basically, you know, I just had hooked up to a laptop and the sound quality wasn't that great and I couldn't quite, you know, learn how to record things that well. And now hopefully we're better quality. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't really speak to that because, you know, aforementioned crappy internet. Yeah. Your aforementioned crappy internet. Me, I smell yes. smooth like leather, leather. Oh, Old spice. Fantastic. Actually, Here's a few fun tidbits about this. There's only been, I think, two lost podcasts that we've had in this whole process where the recording, something happened. One of them was when we were watching The Black Hole. Uh, yep. I think there was another random one, too, but it doesn't stick in my head what we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think you're right. There was, there was one more, but I forget what it was as well. And we might have even re-recorded it. I don't remember. Uh, another fun fact is that the early episodes, I would actually clip and edit segments together where I'd like to record small bits and like, hey, oh, let's talk about other things and then let's go to the bathroom. But I would say about 98% of the episodes, 97% of the episodes we've done, we do all in one take. We very rarely ever edit anything or cut anything out. Because uh, we're professionals and we're also lazy apathetic do not care what the final product is do not do not what you get warts and all mm-hmm. warts and all uh we used to record in my basement john until you moved we had two microphones which i always used to hate because you always used to bang one of the microphones but you still do from time to time essentially you know in your new home 
which yes you, you are still in your basement i am out on the our porch out here in lovely austin minnesota oh they're um, still gonna identity theft you so badly damn it i'm gonna have to get another discord you know account now um my microphone is currently sitting inside the it came from those those lovely people at four hearts because the clamp thing was getting annoying it's sitting in the I forget what they called it, the Tower of Many Wonders or something. It's on their Kickstarter, so, yeah, you yeah. know, I got that. The microphone is currently sitting that because it's nice and stationary. It fits in there well. Good job, 4 Hearts Gaming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we've maybe had only, let's say, several different people on this podcast in previous points in time. Uh, I would say this podcast, uh, we've had it all over in different outlets and platforms. We don't do it as much as we used to. We don't. We've just been too busy. It's because of those kids. And on a side note, if anybody wants some kids, I can give you some kids, but it's going to cost you. Come take some children. For for a price. Yes, like $28. Editors note, this is all satire. They are not actually selling their kids. No, we would never. No, that's what Craigslist is for. Yes, exactly. Who still buys things on Craigslist? Um, perverts? I don't know. I don't know. There, there used to be so many, like, you think about seven years and the rise and fall of so many different, like, the websites are still around, but who still uses them? Like, you know, remember when, like, Tumblr was more of a thing? Tumblr, yeah, that's still around, but they did and then they did their porn purge and it like took a huge hit. And I think now they t- they're allowing porn again, but nobody cares because they've all moved on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Tumblr, pretty soon Twitter, Craigslist, um, MySpace. Well, MySpace, it's actually been kind of more of a resurgent music place where like artists get their music discovered now versus a place where Tom just hung out and you were one of his friends. Yeah, good old time. I never was on, on MySpace. I was, and uh, it was forgettable. Highly forgettable. Yeah. I've gone through, gone through about, I think, six different cell phones in that period of time. Uh, um, me, probably less. I don't go through my phones as quickly. Yeah, I like upgrading. Well, there's a few times where I have forced upgrade because I broke phones and I had to get some new ones. Yeah, that's usually when I upgrade is just when it dies because... I don't care that much about having the newest one. Right, 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 right. Been using uh, for the past like five, six years this same audio setup. Four years, yeah, maybe four years. Actually, yeah, it was four because I think before we used to huddle around the Yeti until we actually got a proper sound mixing board when we started the actual official Geek Roulette one, and then had actual microphones and stands and stuff, and we got all fancy. We we did, we did. It, it shows people because we care. We care a lot. We do care. We care about you, the listener. And thank you, all of you, for listening to us, by, by the way, because we talk some bullshit on this, and some of it's unintelligible. Um, so we appreciate you sticking around through all of our nonsense and all of the multiple arbitrary episodes that probably don't make any sense. Yeah. We we appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Right. I mean, if we wanted to, we could like record two episodes right now and like put one in a can to put out in a couple of weeks or so. But I'm like, let's let's just let's let it run. Let's let this run tonight. Let it breathe. And then, you know, go. Yeah. Let it let it see what happens. See what magic happens. Oh, magic. Glorious magic of just not even giving a damn of what's going on. Right. I mean, 
we still talk various nerdy things. Sometimes we go off on tangents and uh, once uh, in a while. Yeah, I did. Are you are you current on your your summer movies? Have you seen like oh, Guardians and abso- Spider Man and Absolutely not. Absolutely wow. not. I that is just how busy these past like four or five months have been. Um, I mean, I finally only saw like Ant Man Quantumania like maybe about a few weeks back just because it was on Disney Plus, but. I haven't seen John Wick 4 yet. I haven't seen Guardians. I haven't seen Spider-Verse. But in my defense of not seeing Spider-Verse, like finally I was going to go around to actually watching it. It was like a few weeks ago. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to see a movie on Saturday. I'm going to bring the family. We're going to go see Spider-Man inside, across the Spider-Verse. And I went on to Alamo's website. And then when I saw that the final tally for just the tickets to see this was like $70, $73, I'm like, I don't want to see it that bad. I don't. I can't spend seventy three dollars to go see, and that's even before you spend food at the Alamo. Yeah, movies are freaking expensive. It's kind of ridiculous. We did. I did a double feature with the kids. We did Guardians and Spider Man in one day. Took a little break in between. Went to like a park and got some lunch. Um, and it wasn't cheap. It would have been more, but we got like one of those refillable popcorn buckets, so that helped. But, but yeah, movies ain't cheap. I mean, it, it's ridiculous for five people. Seventy three, seventy four. Once you factor in the convenience fees of picking your seats online and all of that, and in my mind, it's like I could spend seventy five dollars for this, or I wait about another two months. It'll be available on digital, where I can then purchase it for twenty five dollars, and yeah. then I can just watch it from the confines of my own home, and I can not have to spend as much in that. And I feel like is that the most antisocial or cheap thing that I could do, but. Man, 75 to see a movie like and I'm assuming that if yours was even cheaper, you know, or I'm not sure what you paid for yours, but two movies in one day. I mean, did you have to take out an equity loan on your home? Well, luckily, it was just me and the two kids like Mariah didn't go with. So it wasn't that bad, but it was it was spendy. I want to say it was like 80 bucks because we did we did matinees earlier on in the day. Like they were both early shows. So so that helped. Like, I know when you go to, you know, past whatever that magical time is, four o'clock, they jack the price way up. Um, so it was, it was spendy, but not as spendy as it could have been, you know, and of course we did the cheating where, you know, like I said, we did the popcorn, but then also, you know, smuggling your own pop and your own candy. So you're not paying $8 for a five ounce box of M&Ms or something. Um, now I also, just to make sure to clarify to everybody, I also looked at a different movie theater just to see, you know what, or maybe I don't see at the Alamo if I'm saving like. 15 20 you know 15 dollars or so going to another theater maybe it's easier to justify but nope price point on the other theater i normally go to was just right around the same range i'm like mm, all right come august i'll watch it yeah that that is the thing like alamo's nice and it, the nice thing about it is it's not like ridiculously overpriced because I, I would pay more to go to alamo and i think it is a tiny bit more but not a ton more it is and, but I think part of it is, like, going five, like, my youngest is six. I know I'm going to have to take him to the bathroom at least once or twice or my wife will, and then that becomes an ordeal. And, yeah, you know, I, I think well, I think the last time I saw a movie at the Alamo, too, I was kind of annoyed just because, like, the people that were sitting next to me, like, every, like, 15 minutes, like, kept ordering something different. Like, just order it all at once, you dickbags. Yeah. You know, why? I don't want to have to keep having a waiter or waiter or I don't know what you even call them. Attendant? Are they? Server? Server. server is I, yeah. You know. Server is probably better. I don't want the server coming back like every few minutes or so like, uh, you're jujubees, sir. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, just just get it and and enjoy the movie and shut up. Yeah, so I am I'm not caught up at all, John. Not at all. And I think I'm mostly caught up. I haven't seen Indiana Jones, which just came out this weekend. That one I, I might see in the theaters, but that one I'm perfectly content with waiting until it gets home. Mm-hmm. I think. See, I have no intention to see Flash. Um, Spider-Man I saw, Guardians I saw. I'm trying to think of what else even came out. There hasn't been a ton this summer yet. It hasn't been like an overstuffed summer, I feel like some of them tend to be. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I I, I don't intend to see Barbie. What's the other? Oppenheimer I, I, looks interesting, but I but I have no desire to see that like in the theaters. That's definitely a wait till it comes to video, you know, home type thing. I'll level with you. I would watch it just because I'd be curious what the hell they're doing in that movie. So you look at the talent they have involved. You know that this is a movie that is not going to take itself seriously. I feel I would almost enjoy that in some level right there, just watching it. Yeah, I will give it that. Um, and I shouldn't say I, would, I have no desire to see it. Like I would maybe see it if once it comes out, it gets decent reviews. And but it's not what I'm going to go see in theaters. Though, if I do end up watching, it'll be when it comes to like you know streaming somewhere. You know, we don't have any more. Like we don't have any drive-ins around us anymore. Did they close that one up by you? The it's one been, on 94? It's been closed for two years. Like, it did not open up last year. And there was concerns because they were building some business park stuff, and nobody could get in touch with the owner, the guy that owns the place. And some I, there was a lot of things that must have been going on in the background. But did not open last Uh-oh. year, did not open this year. I feel that this, this drive-in, like, I think the closest drive-in to us now was, I think, about 40 miles, which, it's nope. Probably, yeah. There's one up on the way up to the city's, uh, what the heck's the name of the city? What's the one the name of that city with the speedway? Elko. Yes, I think they've got one there, but I've never been there to go see anything. And I don't even, I don't know if it's still running. Oh, a couple of years ago they did. Yeah, no, sorry. You're, you're probably more one up on me at this point. Drive-ins are good times. It's a shame. Well, let me ask this. Are you, are you caught up on, I think you should leave season three? I am not. TV, I've got to catch up on. I'm caught up on my movies, but TV, I just watched the first episode of Silo last night, so I want to get that in. I've got to watch yeah, uh, I've got to watch Barry still. I've got to watch uh, The Bear just started up again. Um, yeah, there's a lot of TV I've got to catch up on. So I'm ahead of you on TV where you're ahead of me on movies. Yes, I've got a couple of a lot of fl- uh, plane trips coming up, so I'll just have to like download them onto my tablet and just watch them in there, and maybe I can catch up there. You know what, John? Have you ever heard of the word segue? This would be the perfect segue to talk about our recommendations now. Oh, hell yeah. Let's recommend some shit. Let's recommend some stuff. John, you want to go first? You want me to go first? Um, You can go first. I think I usually go first, but we'll change it up here on the right. anniversary episode. I have a recommendation, and I have an anti-recommendation, something I don't want anybody to endure an experience. Wow. So the first thing is I'm going to do the rec- recommendation. So Queens of the Stone Age, new album just came out this past month, In Times New Roman. It's their first album since their 2017 album of Villains. And it is a fantastic album. It is an album that definitely, it's an emotional album for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Josh Homme has had a lot of uh, public divorce situation, like with his acts as well as some court proceedings a lot of things going on apparently it came out just before this album came out that he had cancer and had to have surgery to remove it this album is definitely an album where you can see there's just a lot more 
darkness around some of the lyrics and just the emotional state of how he is. And it is conducive to fantastic music. I cannot strongly recommend this album enough. John, I know you don't listen to Queens of the Stone Age much, but I would say out of most of their albums they have, I mean, how many albums do they have? They have their self-titled Rated R after Rated R. They have Songs for the Deaf and Lullabies to Paralyze, uh, the Arrow Garris. Then you have like Clockwork, Villains, now this. So they have eight albums. I would probably put in their top three. Nice. Yeah, it's not that I don't like them. I've just never really listened to them much. I need to like, you know, go find their station somewhere and just listen to it because... I don't have anything against them. They're just not somebody I've ever gotten into for for no particular reason. Because you're lame. That is very true. Uh, I am lame. I will cop to that. Hear that, folks. July 2nd, 2023. John has admitted his lameness to us. So uh, round of applause, everyone. Round of applause. Yay. Okay, so that was my recommendation. Now my anti-recommendation. John, this next movie I'm going to talk about is by somebody who I have not hidden a lot of my vocal discouragement of just where this person's career arc has gone over the past decade. And only reason I watch this movie, John, is because my wife, uh, she likes watching Outlander and this new season just started and stars ran a promotion where you could have access to their streaming channel for three months for $3 a month. So she's using these three months to catch up on the new season of Outlander. While she's doing that, I'm like, oh, well, what movies have got on here? And one of the movies they had on here, I watched for about 35, 40 minutes. I'm like, I have to shut this off. I can't. I can't. This is just bad. <laughs> John, I am referring to the movie Clerks 3. That is uh, yes. the biggest, uh, hey, guess what? If you got kids around, I'm going to start going off. This is the biggest <laughs> shithole of movies I have ever watched. It is fucking horrible. I did not wow. laugh. And you've, you've watched some shithole movies. I have. I did not laugh once the entire time. <laughs> not even like snickered or chortled or like, <laughs> that's kind of amusing. No, everything that was in this just felt dead and emotionless and just the plot itself. I'm like, it almost felt like it was a cry for help by Kevin Smith, where it was like, yeah, man, I've gone through some dark stuff. Maybe you'll like help working out, like doing this movie. And I'm going to tell you straight out here, guys, I'm going to spoil this movie right now. So again, no! John, you're not going to, you're not going to mind this. All right. No, I'm, I'm not going to go see it. All right. The movie starts and, it's kind of an homage to like the first clerk where you see here's Dante going to the convenience store and like, oh no, guess what? There's gum in the locks. Gets that off, opens up, and they're showing the montage of him getting the store ready. Uh the video store next door, it's discovered that was purchased by Jane Boblet, Silent Bob, and it's this dispensary. Oh, how appropriate. <laughs> Huh. I didn't see that coming. The first 10, 15 minutes, there's your first red flag that something is weird and not right about this movie. They show like where Dante is at the cash, cash register, and there's a sign which is a memorial of his wife, Becky, who, you know, Rosario Dawson from Clerks 2. Apparently, the date on that is 2006 or 7. She died right after Clerks 2. Wow. And it's going to get worse. 
So, you know, you can see like, oh, this weighs heavy on Dante. Oh, no. And then apparently, you know, they're playing hockey on the roof and doing all the clerksy things they're doing. But apparently, like, I guess, like, Randall, it's really stressed out because he sees various things about his life that, you know, bother him and has a heart attack. And then they make a whole joke about him going to the hospital and the doctor like, yeah, normally this heart attack is a Widowmaker where 80% of the people die. Essentially, it's like Kevin Smith working out his own heart attack that he had, but he's doing a movie yeah. for him. Dante's at the hospital, and he's having flashbacks to when his wife or Becky died. Now, remember in Clerks 2 how she told him that he, she was pregnant? Vaguely, I think I only saw that one once and decided I didn't need to repeat it again. So her character is pregnant, which is why Dante got with her, but also because he loved her. Apparently, she didn't even give birth because she got into a car accident where both her and her unborn child died. Wow, that's dark. It is fucking dark as shit, man. Especially for a Clerks movie. And I'm like sitting there watching this. I'm like, holy shit. Why? Why would you do this? So then like Randall's like, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I, I could make a movie. I'm going to make a movie about the convenience store because let's get a little meta here. And oh, yeah. it, it does not go well. At one point, then like Dante goes to like the graveyard where she's dead. And then she's there as a ghost. Oh, that's right, John. She's there as a ghost. And she's oh. talking about how like sex is great in heaven, how she's slept with like Malcolm X and a bunch of other people. And I'm like, wait a minute. How is this supposed to be like great for Dante to hear that, you know, up in heaven, like the person you love is like, you know, <laughs> fucking a bunch of people. I'm like, where are we going with this? And it gets to the scene where they're trying to cast the movie. And the, the casting scene is like all these people that used to be in all of previous Kevin Smith movies trying to like play it. And it's supposed to be chuckle, chuckle. Look, there's Ben Affleck and Ethan Suppley, and there's all these people. Also, mind you, another person that's in this movie that I absolutely hate with a heartfelt passion, and he's in every Kevin Smith movie for like the past 15 years, is Justin Long. I almost felt like going back and watching the scene in Dodgeball where he gets hit with a wrench multiple times over and over again. That is how <laughs> much he annoys me. But it was during that audition scene that once it got to the end of it, I shut it off. I'm like, I, I can't do this. I can't watch this at all. This is not even funny. I mean, I think maybe that Kevin Smith thought that the nostalgia would be the gravy that would help flavor this movie. It was not. Oh, it was bad. And I'm sitting there like, I'm not going to watch the rest of this. Wikipedia, tell me what the rest of this happened in the rest of this movie. So apparently Randall gets so self-absorbed in the movie and keeps dissing Dante. And I guess at some point Dante has a heart attack. And nice. Randall recognizes that Dante was the one I was there for him. And Dante's talking to ghost Becky and about various things. And eventually like, it almost turns into like a... You know, a whole weirder thing because Randall brings the film in and says, hey, I redid it so the movie's about Dante. And then Dante dies. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> so then he's, like, together with her, and they're both dead and happy, apparently. And I, I'm just saying that, wow, why? Why, 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 why? Yeah, that's fucked up. Right. So I watched... 30, 40 minutes, folks. I couldn't get through it. It was it was bad. And the Wikipedia page equally was depressing. Don't see Clerks 3. Don't even see, like, Mallrats 2 whenever that comes out. Don't ever see any Kevin Smith movie ever again. And if he hears this and he maybe, you know, starts going off on me about it first, 
wow, he's really trolling the you know, like searching the internet to find this. <laughs> Hi, Kevin. Yeah. Sorry. Hi. Sorry, really, but listen, it here's a personal plea to you. I get it. You went through some stuff. You've gone through a lot of phases in your life. You went through, Lori had some amazing hit movies in the early 90s. You had some problems, you know. You tried making Jersey Girl. That didn't go out so well. And then you tried making Cop Out, and Bruce Willis wanted to beat the shit out of you. And he made Clerks 2, and Clerks 2, was, it was okay. But then you started making weird horror movies, and those were all pretty bad. Then you started putting, like, your daughter and wife in all these movies, and they're not really good actors and actresses. And then there's this. I get it. You survived a life like shattering heart attack. But man, I this movie, I don't know where you thought this movie was going to go if it was going to connect with the way you thought it was. And I've talked to others that have watched this. They've not liked it as well either. And no, 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 no. I feel like you're almost, he needs some like people to tell him, like, Kevin, you know, this, I, I get it. You want to go back to clerics or, you know, or most of his stuff lately. Like, you know, maybe, maybe not. Like, this isn't your best work. Like, you know, because what, what did he do before? Oh, he didn't. Didn't he do another Jane Silent Bob before this one? He did, and that was equally equally not good. I saw that. That yeah. was like on Amazon. I, I think the problem is, is this: is that eventually, like for Kevin Smith, the product became him. Like, I think once he, yeah. like, you know, once he got past Clerks two. That's when he started like work like having comic book men and he started having more of his podcast and he started having all these things. And then he was the product. And then he started going back to movies, but the movies weren't as well received when he started going with these horror movies. And I think he was just in a weird place. And then there's this heart attack and everything. I, I think the problem is is that he, here's a guy I think that just doesn't he's been in like a horrible slump for like twenty years where he's just clinging to like the past because hey i'll just keep giving what my fans used to like and i think if there's one thing that he struggled with it's evolving as a filmmaker i think that has been his biggest struggle and if maybe he thinks that this is his next jump and like hey guys i'm gonna make a super serious thing it didn't land that way man it didn't land it was just painful yeah i think the problem is like the view universe was great like when it first came out the first handful of movies you know everybody loved him obviously but I think, like you said, like it's it's time to move on, do something different. You know, you can still have kind of a weird, cheeky kind of humor, but you know, get some different characters, get a different setting, get you know, do something else. Like it's the Viewisk universe had its time. It's time to move on and find a new thing. Well, John, now that we've basically openly dissected this movie for like a good like ten fifteen minutes, uh, what's your recommendation? I have a recommendation. My recommendation is also music, much like yours is, or was rather. Um, my recommendation is Girl Talk, which is actually a DJ named Greg Michael Gillis. Um, the albums I'm going to recommend are a couple of his older ones are from 2006, 2008. That is the the best one, in my opinion, is Feed the Animals. The other one is Night Ripper. Um, it's basically like going to a DJ set where somebody takes like all of your favorite artists, all of your best lyrics, all the best hooks from the last like 40, 50 years and throws them all together. And like just this amazing DJ said, it's just, it's crazy. It bounces from, you know, Radiohead to Metallica to, you know, just every, everything you can imagine, just old stuff, stuff that you've, you know, like you'll be listening to it. And one thing will come on and you'll be like, Oh, I know this song. This is whatever. And then, you know, 10, 20 seconds later, you'll be on to another thing. You go, oh, shit, this is, I recognize this. And as you're trying to figure it out, it bounces to another thing. It's, it's just, it's 
crazy how much it bounces back and forth, but also kind of still maintains just a smooth, you know, listenability, you know, because it is very just crazy and all over the place, but still manages to keep your attention and without being too distracting as it bounces back and forth. Um, it, it sounds like being, you know, I've never been like one to go to like clubs or DJ sets at night, but this sounds very much like something you would find like in some late night DJ set where some DJs up on stage and going to town and like the best of what you would find there. It's just really good stuff. He does have a couple other albums. There's one, um, an earlier one that you can kind of get hints of what, you know, was in these two albums, but you know, good stuff, but not worth recommending in and of itself. Um, and I guess he's got a newer one that came out that he did with a couple of rap artists that I have not listened to yet. Um, but it was just good stuff. I found it a few weeks ago or a month ago or so. Uh, another podcast I listened to just kind of mentioned it offhand and just listening to them talk about it. I was like, that sounds like an interesting thing. I'll go track it down and did it. And it just blew me away. And it's been a while since I've listened to anything that, you know, has had just this different kind of sound and, you know, had that impression on me. So go check out Girl Talk if that is something that sounds like it would interest you. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. cool oh, yeah. Cool. You know, I'm actually going to two concerts. I think these are the first concerts I'm going to in like the past three, four years. Wow. What are you going to? I haven't been to a concert. I don't even know what the last concert I was at was. Well, uh, in August, I'm going to go see the Dandy Warhols at the Fine Line. Nice. And then in uh, one month later in September, I'm going to go see Queens of the Stone Age at the Armory. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Concerts. I hear I hear the armor is a decent venue. I, I've heard that too. I've not been there. I almost went to a concert there when Beck was going to go there, but fortunately, I'm glad I didn't because he backed out because I can't remember what band he's with, but there was allegations against the singer. Was it Fallout Boy or something like that? I can't remember. Jerks. Yeah. Stupid allegations. Oh, man. Let's move on to a topic. I mean, according to my timer, we've been talking for 33 minutes already. Wow, and we haven't even gotten to the meat of the podcast. Super-sized episode, mofos. Super-sized, and it's not even going to cost you extra, everybody. No. Nope. This is for free. This is for free. Uh, I have now moved on to my second beer, John. Wow. I still just have my water. Maybe while you're talking later, I'll go get some whiskey or something. That Just what you're indicating is while I'm, you're talking, Mike, I'm going to ignore you and just walk off and do something else. I mean, pretty much. This like real life. Again, how's that any different from what we've done with our podcast? No cuts. None whatsoever. You'll probably address me when I'm going to get this whiskey, and I just won't say, oh, sorry, it, it was the internet or something. All right, guys. Quentin Tarantino. He, uh, I would almost say that in terms of act, uh, directors, in the 90s, he was probably one of, let's say, the two or three directors that kind of like broke through and I think changed the game. Like if there was other directors. And Kevin, and Kevin Smith. <laughs> no. Let me put it this way. <laughs> Kevin Smith, he played a different game. I don't know if he changed it, though, but he did make being kind of a geek and nerd kind of cool, and he touched a bunch of things. But the filmmaking style at Tarantino, definitely unique, definitely taps into a lot of different styles and formats, other directors from that same decade that I felt, you know, that came out that decade. I had some, you know, good movement. Uh, let me think here. I would probably say David Fincher, Fincher, his work in the nineties definitely set him up pretty well. 
Uh, Nolan was near the end of the 90s, but... Yeah, maybe even the 2000s. I'm not sure when. When did Memento I mean, come I, out? I, I was going to say, I think Memento was late 90s, but that was a very still very much like a cult classic. Like Right. You, you had to kind of know, know to know that one. Yeah, but Tarantino... We're talking a guy, uh, he was kind of a high school dropout. He definitely had a huge love of writing and a love of movies. He, One of his first early jobs he had was working like an adult movie theater. He worked in a video store. Um, a lot of this gave him time to watch a lot of different movies. Uh, with him, you know, he he's definitely got a unique style to him. I think... He's one of those directors, if you were to watch one of his movies, you would sit there and say, oh, shit, yeah, this is a Tarantino movie because of just certain things that he would do in his movies that would definitely have his signature. Um, his first movie that he technically directed but never had a widescreen was, like, back in 87. Um, fun fact, he was actually in an episode of The Golden Girls, John, as an Elvis impersonator. Wow. Uh-huh. But his, I, I, can, I can see him doing an Elvis impersonator, though. I can, too, yes. But his first uh, official movie that came out was 1992, which was Reservoir Dogs. Now, Reservoir Dogs, when that came out, that was not the first Tarantino movie I ever watched. Um, that definitely bought him a lot of clout. Uh, he was the writer of the movie True Romance, and apparently... He had a lot of offers to do movies after Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. Like, they offered him to actually direct Speed. <laughs> and I can't even imagine what a Quentin Tarantino Speed movie would have been like. Yeah, that, that would have been something. It would have been something right there. But I, I feel like his biggest uh, breakthrough that he had around the 90s is when Pulp Fiction came out. And I feel Pulp Fiction, that was such a cultural cornerstone of movies that movie, like, literally resurrected both, I feel, Bruce Willis. I wouldn't even say Bruce Willis. I think it invigorated Bruce Willis, but yeah. sa salvaged John Travolta. Because Bruce Willis still had the Die Hard movies and had some things in the early 90s. He was, yeah, he, he was doing all right. But I think that was the movie that maybe made people take him a lot more seriously as an actor, you know, from that point right there. And that movie, you know, just became so amazingly quotable. He uh, had a credit with doing a lot of the story writing for uh, Natural Born Killers. So he had that going for him. He did, you know, some other little things where he worked with uh, collaborator Robert Rodriguez. He did From Dust Till Dawn. He did Four Rooms. His next movie wouldn't have been until uh, 1997 when Jackie Brown came out. And Jackie Brown doesn't get a lot of love, I think. It's not a bad movie. It's pretty good. Then he disappeared for another six, seven years, where then he became out with Kill Bill. And with Kill Bill, again, I think that thrust him back into the limelight again in terms of, like, you know, him being back. He had a bunch of serious other movies come out. I think, like, on average, like, three to four years was the gap of time between, like, every movie that he put out and everything. And they're saying that he has committed only making one more movie. And after that, he's going to retire from directing. And... You know what? Good. If he does that, yeah, he, he's already in the Hall of Fame at this point in terms of things. But, John, what was your first ever experience to Quentin Tarantino? I mean, I'm similar to you, you and a lot of people. First one I saw was Pulp Fiction back in 94. Um, 
you know, saw that, went back and saw Reservoir Dogs after, shortly after that. But, I mean, that was the big, I mean, it was the movie of the time. I mean, 1994, I think, if you look back at, like, the, the Oscars that year, I, I forget what they all are, but, like, the the, win, the nominations for Best Picture that year is, like, a freaking murderer's row. I think Forrest Gump beat out Pulp Fiction, which a lot of people take some... Uh, Take some issue with, with which I would agree. I think Pulp Fiction is definitely better, you know, the better movie. I think, you know, Forrest Gump is not bad, but I don't know those best picture quote, you know, well, worthy over Pulp Fiction. Here's what was nominated for best picture. Uh, hang on one second. Was it 94? He was nominated. 94 is, yeah, 94 is when it came out. Might have been the 95 Oscars. It might have been 94 or 95. Let me double check something right here because I think they're. The way the Oscar rules are just kind of weird, but so Best Picture, it wasn't. I think it was ninety five. Best Picture in ninety four, because remember, it goes the year before. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, ninety four. That was Schindler's List, which you aren't beating probably Schindler's List ever. No. The Fugitive, nah, it was okay. In the Name of the Father, no, nobody cares. The Piano, nobody cares. Remains of the Day, wow, what a, that was a pretty bad year. Actually, what's weird. Is that Philadelphia was not nom- nominated for Best Picture? That is odd. Yeah, especially since Tom Hagen didn't he win for that that year? Yeah, no, you're you're talking. Oh wow, yeah, ninety ninety five here. The winner was Forrest Gump, and that was the movie that I feel should have not won it at all. Uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, nope, that that shouldn't have won. There's Pulp Fiction. Uh, there's the Shawshank Redemption. That's a good one. The last movie, actually, this the last movie in the best picture is one that I'm a huge fan of. I don't know if you've ever seen. It. Have you ever seen the movie Quiz Show? I have not actually. That's actually really good. It's it's a movie about the like game show like scandals of like the 50s and 60s where game shows back then were rigged, and apparently somebody that was on the losing side of rigged. There was a guy that had a winning streak basically. And then basically was told to take a dive. And if he took a dive, like, you know, they would give him his own show, but they didn't. And then he came back and exposed. And then they had to, like, regulate game shows in terms of, let's say, legitimacy. It's got Ralph Yens in it. It's got, like, Hank Azaria. It's it's actually a very good movie. I would strongly recommend it. But I, I would pick that over Forrest Gump. Yeah, I mean, most, like, I think out of the... The three big ones on there, obviously, are Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, and Shawshank, which I think either Shawshank or Pulp Fiction could have won it over Forrest Gump. But you know, now hey, we're not we're not the voters. John John Travolta was nominated for Best Actor, and uh, this is the weird thing: he was nominated for Best Actor. Tom Hanks won it uh, over Morgan Freeman. <laughs> okay, uh, but Best Supporting Actor nominated was uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Now. Oh. That is that is kind of weird right there that Jackson was a supporting actor versus Travolta. But then again, I suppose Travolta had more of his own segment, which probably put him in the movie a bit more. Now, Tarantino did win Best Screenplay in those Oscars that year, though. And rightfully nice. so. That, that's that's screenplay. That was... I, I think... If anything, let's if we're going to talk about Tarantino, let's start with Pulp Fiction because I think that was the movie that essentially landed him completely on the map at that point. Like I remember when that movie came out, seeing like the previews for it and everything. And the reason I knew about the movie is the guy I was working with at the time at uh, White Castle, 
uh, was Kevin Hansen. He, he saw the movie. He said it was the most amazing thing in the world. So we went and watched the movie, and I, I was just blown away by how great that movie is. I was so blown away, John, that I saw that movie, and is the record, I saw that movie six times in the theater within that year. Wow. That's impressive, sir. It is. That is the most I have ever seen a movie in the theater, probably barely beating out number two, John. What would be number two? Is it number two, Mallrats? No. Didn't you see Mallrats a shit ton of times in the theater as well? If we, you know, to keep bringing it back to Kevin Smith, I saw it maybe a couple of times, but not, not to the six time range. No, the this number two movie that I've ever probably seen the most time in the theaters is five times, and that is The Empire Strikes Back. Uh yeah, that makes sense. And I've probably seen, yeah, one of those is probably up there too for me. I don't, I don't know what my number one is. I don't usually keep. It's probably one of the Star Wars ones, but I'm not sure which one. So I, I watched this movie, and I was enamored. I think the things that stuck out about Pulp Fiction and what made it such a, a completely different movie than what anybody else was doing, it was the dialogue. The dialogue in that movie, it was a movie where it was hugely dialogue-driven, and it was great, amazing dialogue. It was highly quotable dialogue. It just was a dialogue that had a style of its own. It was the music that was in the movie. Like the music choices were very specific by Tarantino and reverberates where now these songs, if you were to hear them, you would have to think of Pulp Fiction because of the, that's how yeah. the songs are reappropriated. And again, just some of the acting performances in that movie. I mean, some people that broke out in that movie, like as an example, Ving Rhames, that was a great example there where that movie put him on the map and he was able to do whatever he wanted after that point right there. Reinvigorated Travolta as an example, uh, you know, Bruce Willis, you know, he stepped up. Samuel L. Jackson, again, I think that was the movie that made Samuel Jackson as well. So, I mean, this 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 is one of those just Hallmark movies itself. Yeah, I think one of the other things that kind of makes it stand out is just the, the way the story is told, how it kind of not bounces linear. around a little bit. You get different characters. Yeah, it's not super linear. Um, you know, characters disappear, then later on they show up again in somebody else's story, and it kind of just, they kind of cross and weave across each other, and you know, until it all kind of comes to a close at the end. And that's the thing you see a little bit more now, but even these days you don't really see that a whole lot. But, you know, I think that was definitely the first big example of that. And, you know, you kind of saw people afterwards kind of trying to mimic that, copy that, but I don't think any of them ever quite quite to the same effect that he did in this. I, I would say Nolan was the only one who would probably be able to take a movie, put it out of order, and make it make sense with uh, not only the prestige, but also with uh, Memento. Yes, which I did look. Memento came out in 2000. All right. So, yep, that was at the tail end right there. This movie is broken into four segments. The first segment is kind of an introduction to, like, you know, your two characters, which is, you know, Vince Vega and Jules Winfield, as they're going on to a job itself, which is retrieve, you know, a suitcase, which becomes a future plot point for the movie. The second segment is going to be a date between Mia and uh, Vincent, where they have their date, and that leads a, well, not date. That's, of course, the thing left up for interpretation. Uh, you have the segment after that, which is, of course, Butch the Boxer, as he's trying to evade uh, Marcellus Wallace after not throwing a fight, and that leads to different things. And lastly, 
Oh, not even lastly. No, it's still lastly. It's all part of the same segment. Well, both segment and end segment, but, uh, you know, the aftermath of the job at the beginning of the movie and, you know, then trying to clean up a mistake that was made. Out of all the segments in that, which which of the segments of that movie was your favorite? I think probably the probably the, the, the Sam Jackson Tarantino one, I think I would say. Although the Bruce Willis stuff was pretty good. I think would be a close second for me. I, I think the movie ended perfectly. I would say that out of all the segments, the weakest one would be probably the Mia Vince Vega, you know, uh, date. Yeah. But my, I think my favorite segment is probably the beginning of the movie, the introduction to, like, both Jules and Vince and just, you know, the Kahuna Burger, just all of that. That that scene, I think, is what sets so much of that tone of that movie. That After you watch that scene... After you watch Samuel Jackson do the quote and everything, you're basically hooked at that moment. That's where you sit there. Like I could, like, at the beginning of the movie, just watch that all the time. Le Bimac, you know, <laughs> Royale with cheese. I mean, again, so hugely quotable in itself. But that was, I think, what just sucked you in. And, like, I want to know more about this world. Yeah, I think his, his way with dialogue and, you know, writing, like I think you said, you know, him winning screenplay, best screen, written screenplay is, you know, not a shock at all. Just listening to the dialogue, the banter, the back and forth, you know, how quotable it is with everything. I mean, there's stuff people probably quote from this thing that don't even realize where they're quoting it from. You know, like when we were kids, we'd quote things and you're like, oh, shoot, that's from this movie. I think there's, there's people today that are probably, you know, saying lines from this movie that they don't realize that that's where it comes from. Like, it's just that good. It's gotten that ingrained in the psyche because it's so well written and so well acted and everything like that. So it's, you know, it sticks in your brain. Definitely. Like you said, I think that first scene sucks you in and does a great job of making you want, okay, what, what the heck's going on here? These, this is, you know, it's different than anything you've heard, different than anything you've seen before. And you're, you're along for the ride after that first scene. And I think the thing is, is that so many people try to rip this movie off like the next two, three years. We had these kind of gritty movies, which they try to do dialogue driven, but nobody I think could properly replicate it. And I think the other thing, too, that, you know, they tried to replicate it, but a different type of thing happened because I think right after 94 is when, like, the summer blockbuster movies then started, like, jumping off. And then for, like, four or five years, there was always these, like, huge summer movies like Independence Day and, you know, Twister and Men in Black. Basically, any movie with Will Smith in it at that point in time. But Pretty much. But, I mean, even... Even then, you know, it influenced so many other different movies. I, my, I think, you know, other things too, like in terms of memorable, you know, actors in the movie itself, like Harvey Keitel as Winston Wolf, great small cameo, but nails it just completely perfectly in there. And yeah, it's good stuff. If you haven't seen it, go see it. So to continue the Tarantino journey. We're going to now go to his first movie because after I watched Pulp Fiction and found out, hey, do you know that Tarantino has a first movie? I'm like, oh, he does? Well, then allow me to retort. Let me watch this movie. And then that's when I discovered uh, Reservoir Dogs. Now, fun fact, John, Reservoir Dogs was the first DVD I ever bought. Nice. I bought it, and when I bought it, it was in like 98, 99. And I did not realize that my computer did not have a DVD player in it. So I had that movie for two years until I actually had a DVD player to actually watch it. Nice. Sitting around gathering dust. Right. So this movie, uh, you know, going flashing back real quick to Pulp Fiction, 
this movie was a movie that definitely put Tarantino on the map and radar. Matter of fact, you know how uh, Pulp Fiction got made? The key actor that made this movie a reality? Who was that? Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito was a huge fan of Reservoir Dogs and saw the huge potential of the movie, so he actually helped finance a huge chunk of Pulp Fiction, and that is why it got made. Nice. Good old Danny. Yeah, that guy's... That, that Honestly, that's like a Hall of Fame actor where I can't ever sit there and think of anything bad about Danny DeVito. Twins? Even that. Even that, you can... <laughs> that's even a movie where like you could sit there and like, this is a horrible premise, but you're like, Danny DeVito's like... You know what? I could use a little extra spending money, and you're going to put me in a movie next to Arnold Schwarzenegger. We're going to pretend to be twins. Why not? I that's a that's a that's a fuck around movie right there. If there was ever one, <laughs> but uh, the movie that kind of like you know made Devito sit there and say, "Yeah, I I want to get behind this guy. This guy's doing something different." Was Reservoir Dogs? Now Reservoir Dogs, a unique movie in itself, because he had still been working at the uh, video store, and he came up the plan with this. He uh, met Lawrence Bender, uh, who would help him then, you know, make the movie itself. And then they, the first person they got on board was Harvey Keitel. Once they got Harvey Keitel uh, signed on to the movie itself, then everybody else then like kind of fell in line and said, "Yeah, let's let's see what this movie's about and everything." Uh, Reservoir Dogs movie about essentially a jewel heist that goes wrong, and then it turns it almost into like a whodunit movie, basically where. They're trying to figure out why the heist went wrong and that there had to been an inside person that was, you know, what was the problem with the entire heist itself. And it is an intriguing movie because there is only technically three sets in the entire movie. And the three sets in the movie is the beginning of the movie when they're in the diner where they are talking about Madonna's Like a Virgin and about tipping. So great. Again, this is like the early hook of like Tarantino stuff where he just writes great dialogue where you kind of want to see where the dialogue goes at this point. Um, you have the second part where they're basically kind of in an abandoned warehouse area where about 80% of the movie takes place. That and a little bit outside. And then they have another scene where they're going down the street. So very minimal scenes. It is definitely a hugely character-driven movie itself. Um, Harvey Keitel was in it. Tim Roth was in it. Tim Roth, honestly, Reservoir Dogs made me wish that Tim Roth was in more movies. You see him in Pulp Fiction. Uh, he plays uh, Pumpkin. Uh, it's a robbery at the end of the movie itself, in the beginning of the movie. And you sit there and think, man, this amazing actor, and I'm Amazed he's not been in more things. Michael Madsen was in it, who's become a cornerstone of Quentin Tarantino movies. Chris Penn, he was in it. Buscemi was in it. So a lot of great actors in it. And again, it's one of those movies where just hugely dialogue-driven, but also a lot of music in there as well. What's your experience with Reservoir Dogs? I remember I had pretty much a similar thing where after seeing Pulp Fiction, I watched Reservoir Dogs. Um, and very similar. I mean, it's, again, the, you know, the dialogue pulls you in the acting. I think the acting in this one almost almost maybe a little bit more than the you know than pulp fiction, you know, that where the, the actors kind of pull you in with their performance and what they're doing. Um you know, I haven't gone back to this one as much. It's one I probably should go back to pretty soon here, along with a couple others on this list, obviously. Um but I mean it's good stuff. I think it I think it works well as either if you watch this before Pulp Fiction or or as a follow up to it. I think it works either way. I mean obviously they're not directly tied to each other but i think they're both you know they're both very strong and for somebody's 
you know, first two major movies, like it's, you know, it's no wonder that he's gone on to have the career that he has after these two weeks. I mean, they're both solid films that any any director would be happy to have just one of these under their belt, much less have both of them, and then go on to a career, you know, after that that has, you know, many more awesome movies in it. Yeah, I mean, originally Tarantino debuted this movie at the Sundance Film Festival, and then after that, uh, that's when it was picked up by Miramax Pictures and then went on to show it a few other festivals before releasing. They released it a few different times itself. Um, you know, from a budget... Like they basically shot this film like I think in a budget like a film budget of like thirty, forty thousand dollars and you know, did amazing things with how the movie, you know, ran and operated itself. They consider I think it was one of I think Reservoir Dogs is what kicked off a lot of ind- independent films back in like the early nineties. It was a movie where, you know, you had all these studios and here's this little guy that comes in, elbows his way through everybody else and says, Look what I can do with this. And I think that's when they started realizing, here's somebody that can do a lot with this movie, you know, a lot with writing. And I think that's where writing became like a cornerstone of movies for at least several years. Until, as I said, I think the blockbuster movies, they they kind of took more of a front seat, but you still had a lot of these movies. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you would have gotten movies like, as an example, like uh, L.A. Confidential. I don't think you would have gotten a movie like Seven. You know, those are some movies right there that if there wasn't movies like Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, I don't think those movies would exist. No, I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, you know, domino fall pattern here where, where one leads to the other. I mean, you maybe would have gotten them, but they probably wouldn't have been the same movies or they would have been, you know, not nearly as well promoted and would have just been relegated to like direct to DVD or something like that. I think like these two movies were the movies that gave studios the thought that, hey, with some of these directors, let's give them a little bit more leash. Let's see what they can do, especially since a lot of these movies were being done with a lot cheaper budgets. And I think that's where, with the cheaper and lower budgets on these movies, because of, let's say, what they were at the time, a studio was more along the lines like, yeah, you know what? If it doesn't work out, it's not a lot of money lost on there. But that's where a lot of these money movies became so profitable was just because they started out small and showed what you could do with a lot of just, you know, simple things is just... Focusing on the acting and the script itself. Indeed. Now, here, here's a question here: who who is the who is the MVP of Reservoir Dogs? Um, God, I don't know. It's tough to say. I I'm going to tell you right now. We'll break it down to three people. Because I I would say it's definitely either Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, or Steve Buscemi. Harvey was the one I was thinking of, like. Just now off the top of my head, so I'll go with him. But I think any one of those three are, you know, you're doing all right with. I don't think the movie works if you took any one of those guys out of it. I think you needed Bashemi's kind of selfish but, you know, clever guy. You needed, like, Tim Roth, who had to show you had to be a chameleon to survive things. And Harvey Keitel's no-nonsense ways. I, I would say that I love Roth, but Keitel... He was probably the MVP of this movie. Yeah, he did some good stuff here, and then you know followed up in in other Tarantino movies, of course. He did, but yeah, I I think you know as movies go, this one right here, it I think it's almost better in some ways that I watched this one second after Pulp Fiction, because I think it I still thought that Pulp Fiction was a better movie, but I had a better appreciation of this movie. I think having Pulp Fiction set up a lot of what the world was like. 
it was i think it was just a nice little add-on again the music used in this movie too like some of the music you know like you know they had hooked on a feeling or stuck in the middle with you or you know just again just good songs that it almost it almost felt like you were listening to like an old you know am radio station as you were driving like in the early 80s or so that's just how it felt yeah and i think these two like you kind of said like these two go together probably better than any other two movies on this list with the potential of you know Django and hateful hateful late but i think i think even with those two just being western like these these two fit together quite nicely i think which the way they're written the way they're acted and the style on them now we're going to talk about Tarantino's third movie, and by that, I'm going to probably talk about it more because this is one that you have not seen. Yes, indeed. All right. So Tarantino's third movie was in 1997, so three years after Pulp Fiction. He had all this huge love in Pulp Fiction. He did have a hand in with some of these other movies that have, you know, doing some touch-up work in other movies. He uh, kind of worked also on, like, uh, Robert Rodriguez's Desperado helping out in there as well. Desperado, by the way, still a very underrated action movie. Yes. Have you ever seen Desperado, John? I think I've seen parts of it. I don't know what I've actually seen the whole thing. So, Jackie Brown was an adaptation of a book, and it's kind of, again, like a homage of like old, like, 70s exploitation films, and it has... Uh, in there as uh man, I'm sorry, Pam Greer is in there. And again, this is where you're taking a person that kind of faded more off into obscurity, takes Pam Greer and puts her back in the front. Pam Greer is amazing in this movie. And kind of explain it to you, John, is that the premise of the movie is that Jackie Brown's his flight attendant and she's smuggling money for like a you know, an arms dealer and she gets caught like coming back from a flight and basically it becomes like a game of chess essentially where the police want her to flip on Samuel L. Jackson's character Ordell, who is thinking he's a lot more big time as an arms dealer than he actually is. You have a bail bondsman. Matter of fact, again, such a great character, a great actor, Robert Forrester, uh, Forrester was in this movie and he plays a bail bondsman who then, helps bail out Jackie, but then eventually starts having feelings for Jackie Brown itself. Uh, Michael Keaton is in the movie as a cop. Robert De Niro's playing a stoner, which is the most weirdest Robert De Niro, you know, role that you would ever have. But essentially it's a lot of people trying to play a lot of people where Jackie's just trying to get out of the situation where she doesn't get killed and she's able to get away free. And again, it's a, it's just a, it's an interesting movie. It is not the flashiest of Quentin Tarantino's movies, I think. I think it's a movie that, again, is a very character-driven movie, a lot of acting. I'll, I'll tell you this much. So here's here's what we're looking at for cast here. Pam Greer is in there. She was a movie star from the 70s, had a lot more prominence, and this movie kind of brought her back to the forefront. Samuel L. Jackson is in there as an arms dealer. Robert Forrester is a Bales bondsman, Max Cherry. Bridget Fonda's in there. Actually, I like Bridget Fonda in this. Uh, Michael Keaton was in there. De Niro was in there. Chris Tucker was had a cameo in there. Tony uh, Tiny Lister was in there. Those are some of the more known names that you're going to have in this whole situation itself. Fun fact, John, who do you think the worst character and actor is in this movie out of those names I said? Chris Tucker. 
No, Chris Tucker is Chris Tucker. You basically know what you're getting with Chris Tucker. And this is before Chris Tucker blew up in like, you know, uh, Rush Hour, a lot of the movies that he was in or in like The Fifth Element. I'll go Michael Keaton. No, Michael Keaton's actually really good in this. I feel Michael Keaton, again, always a very underrated actor. I think the problem with Michael Keaton is that in the 80s, he was a comedian, you know, comedy actor, did a lot of comedy things. Batman kind of changed that. But I think after Batman, he kind of got pigeonholed as Batman. And his movie career in the 90s wasn't as big as it could be. And I think it wasn't until, like, you know, I think the mid-2000s, late 2000s, that he started taking on different types of roles that got him a lot more prominence. But, no, he's great in this. What if I were to tell Uh, you that Samuel L. Jackson is probably the weakest link in this movie? That would be interesting because especially in, like, Tarantino movies, he generally does pretty well. I think the problem is is that Samuel L. Jackson in this movie plays too much as a cliche of Samuel L. Jackson. You see it, it's okay, but he's the least interesting character because it's not like he's playing Jules from uh, Pulp Fiction. He's not. He's playing a much more flamboyant, cocky kind of guy and everything. He just didn't really click for me in the movie. You know, Robert De Niro, also probably equally weak, but De Niro's interesting because watching, again, De Niro play like kind of a stoner guy, a weird, weird thing to see. Yeah, not usually the type of thing he does. No, but I, I would say that, you know, the best actor and actress in this movie is definitely Pam Greer and Robert Forster. Those two, like, nailed it. It. I would say this, John. I know that we talked before this podcast and you said that this wasn't something that you would rush out and see. I think it's a movie that... It's an interesting movie to watch. It's something you could probably, like, does your wife actually like any of the Tarantino movies? No, she's not a big Tarantino person. I feel that this is the Tarantino movie you show to somebody that doesn't like Tarantino movies, and they'll probably like it in the process. Like, I, I bet yeah, if I... I mean, I, I do remember, like, when this came out, because this was the follow-up, obviously, like we said, to Pulp Fiction. Like, there were a lot of people that were kind of underwhelmed with it. Maybe that's why I didn't go see it. Um because as you said, it is a very different kind of movie. Um, so I can, I can definitely see where this could be something that would appeal. Like if you don't like Pulp Fiction or Kill Bill or, you know, some of his more well-known stuff, this might be the one you want to check out. Well, and the weird thing is, is that critics actually liked the movie. They thought it was a good movie, very character-driven. You know, the fans, you know, in terms of their reviews on it, like varied a lot. You know, they were... They were above average in terms of how the movie is, and I think the problem is because it's a different movie. I think the the hardest part is is that no matter what movie you he would have done to follow up Pulp Fiction, probably wasn't going to be received as well just because Pulp Fiction set that bar so high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, here's an interesting thing right here. Like, the movie, $12 million budget. It only grossed, like, uh, $39 million in the United States. Remarkably low when you give the fact that of, you know as an example, you know, what his other movies have done. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, would, I, would, I would probably, I'm guessing it's probably his lowest, least grossing. Maybe Death Proof would be the other one. I don't know. Eh, we'll get to Death Proof and we'll, we'll talk about that. But outside of that, you know, uh, for uh, Academy Awards, you know, Forrester was actually nominated as a Best Supporting Actor in Academy Awards. He didn't win and everything, but... Again, you know, I think that's a good thing. Now, John, do you know who Robert Forster is? 
I say the name. Yeah, I've known the name, and I I recognize his face. Um, He was big, like, in the 70s, wasn't he? I forget exactly what for. John, he is my favorite cult movie of all time. Nice. What's that? He's in the black hole. He's the lead captain. He's the captain in the black hole. There we go. Yep. Now that you mention it, yeah, he is. And his most <laughs> his final roles that he had was uh, he was in Breaking Bad and as well as Better Call Saul. Nice. He was the guy that was the guy in the fifth season that could make you disappear if you paid him money. The vacuum guy. Nice. There are people I would like to make disappear maybe occasionally. Uh, it's just fiction, John. Uh, let's not talk about murder on our podcast. Don't call up Robert Forrester and ask him to make people disappear. Well, he might end up at your house. He's also dead now. He died only just about a year or so ago. Oh, that's a bummer. Right, right it is. So I would say Jackie Brown, a definitely unique movie, but I think it had the the horrible displeasure of having to be the movie to follow, unfortunately, Pulp Fiction. I think that kind of worked against it. So what came after that, and this was a six-year gap between Jackie Brown it was a movie that was actually going to be released as one movie, but it would have had a four-hour runtime. So they split it into two movies. And that would be considered his weird samurai epic movie, Kill Bill. John, what are your thoughts on Kill Bill, both volume one and two? Um, yeah, I mean, because as you said, they're basically it's basically one movie, even though they're released separately. Just, um, I mean, it's... Different, I mean, we and we keep using this word, you know, a fair amount. Like, I think it's different than any of his other movies. And I, although I say that not having seen Death Proof, um, you know, very much, you know, I mean, it's got that old school kung fu kind of thing with, you know, with David Carradine in there. Of course it does. Um, you know, just action movie, old school Hong Kong kind of kung fu movie type thing, revenge movie. Um and I really enjoyed these. I know I, I saw both of these in the theater when they came out. Um, and again, lots of different characters in there. You know, Michael Madsen's in there. You know, I mean, all of his different little... I forget how many how many different people do you have working under him, Bill? I forget. Uh, wasn't it six? Five or six? Well, here, I'll go over the cast like right that. now. So Tarantino brought back Uma Thurman after working with her, of course, in Pulp Fiction. And she was in the as the bride throughout the movie until you learn her name near the end of the movie yeah, itself. Yeah, towards the end there. Uh, with Uma, interesting role choice for her, but, you know, it was casting her as a strong female, you know, protagonist in the movie. She does, I think, actually rather well in the movie. She has a good amount of presence, is able to easily carry the lead role in the movie itself. Um, she was... The premise of Kill Bill is that it's kind of almost a revenge movie where there was a assassination squad that Uma was part of. Uh, she wanted out. She got out, but the squad came out, put her in a coma. She got out of the coma and then basically decided to get revenge and take out every member of the assassination squad, including uh, the leader of the squad, which was Bill. Didn't they kill her husband, too, or something? They did. It was a wedding. She was pregnant, and her future husband, or was going to be her husband, you know, died. But uh, cast in this movie, you had uh, Lucy Liu. Uh, she does an okay job. Uh, David Carradine as Bill. Vivica A. Fox. Michael Madsen, who's an old uh, standard you find in a lot of movies. Uh, Daryl Hannah was uh, in the movie. Uh, you also had Sonny Chiba, one of the classic... Uh, martial artists for movies in there as well as movies go it's an interesting movie because this movie of tarantino's 
it's almost like watching a video game in some ways where like it almost feels like each board you know each each like progression is like a different level of the video game where you're trying to find how to take out another member of the gang itself but in between those you also get a lot of intertwined backstory about uma as the bride and how she became who she was how she learned what she did and what kind of what her journey was through the whole process itself uh as a you know for you know four hour movie split into two it's a good choice it's i would say as movies go this was definitely i think a very hyper stylized movie there's a lot of things that tarantino does in this movie which kind of does things from a he's a lot more i think experimental artistically with some of the choices that he makes in this movie i mean there's various points in this movie where he has animated sequences he has like entire fight sequences done in black and white you know he has like various types of flashbacks he uses a lot of narrative devices in this movie um i would say this as a movie i think it's it's a good movie it's i think one of those nice movies that you can watch because really you don't need to put a lot of thought into the movie it's not like you do with a lot of, like, I think Tarantino movies. They're not as deep emotionally in terms of plot or anything like that. I do feel that this one, as movies go, my my bigger thing with this, I think it's not a bad movie. I think it does well to what it does. But you could also see where Tarantino indulges himself a lot in a lot of different scenes, which sometimes I think, you know, some of the things he does in scenes, which detracts from, I think, the pace of the movie itself. I don't know what your thoughts are and whether you like this or not. No, this was one I definitely enjoyed. It's a little bit more you can tell. I feel like this one you can tell. I mean, he clearly has fun making all of his movies, but I feel like this one he kind of let loose a little bit more. He let his style kind of, you know, he tried some new stuff. Like you said, you know, and there were the, the parts where, you know, people are getting their arms cut off and the blood sprays coming out, you know, kind of like in those old movies again from Japan or wherever they were at. Um, but like I said, I think this one you could you could – tell he went you know he cut loose a little bit more head for fun with it the, the actors again you know he does i feel that's another thing he does a good job with where he you know casting his roles is something i feel like he's done pretty good because there's pretty much everybody in this thing is you know solid i mean you know his you know the hit the what do you call the killers you know michael madsen daryl hannah david carradine lucy lou i think were them was vivica fox one of them too yes yeah i mean it's you know a literal murderer's row of, you know, just awesome character actors that all did a great job. All had their kind of own quirky little traits. Um, but it's just, I don't know, for me, this is just kind of a fun, like you said, you can kind of shut your brain off a little bit. There's some nice stuff going on there, obviously, but it's not when you have to pay as much attention to as like, you know, say your Reservoir Dogs or, you know, I assume like with Jackie Brown, stuff like that. You can kind of, you know, more, more of a popcorn film, I suppose, for Tarantino than a lot of his other ones. I feel that this movie, along with Jackie Brown, you tend, I think, to have a greater appreciation for the movies had you watched some of the movies they pay homage to. If you've watched some of the black exploitation films, you know, from the seventies, you would have a better appreciation of Jackie Brown and what he was trying to do. Same with this too. I think it had you watched a lot more of, let's say, some of your late seventies, early eighties, like martial art films. Again, I think you would have a better appreciation of the movie itself. I think where some of that might be where some people get lost in that, where they maybe don't quite understand what he's trying to do in some of those movies. But I think the movie itself was good. Again, this is a movie I think that kind of revitalized them because of the uniqueness of the movies and what it did. And I think, again, it's 
I think people saw this movie and like, oh, Tarantino is back, which I don't think he really left when he did Jackie Brown, but I think it also kind of said, oh yeah, this is this is maybe what we're more used to seeing out of, let's say him. Uh, who do you, who would you think the MVP of the movie would be? Um, I think David Carradine did a pretty damn good job of just being this, you know, hateful guy that you know you you know you you always hear the term like you love to hate like he's he's an asshole he you know he did you know this is kind of another I think this was shortly before he died as well, um, you know did a good job kind of bringing the spotlight to himself in this one I don't I don't think he got a whole lot after this but uh. But I feel like he did a good job. He might not be the best there, but I think, you know, just definitely underrated. You can kind of see why he was a star back in the 70s and all those kung fu movies and TV show and everything. I think Carradine was okay. I think I think the harder thing with Carradine is that, you know, it's it's sometimes harder to believe that, hey, this guy is as badass as you like to think he is portrayed in the movie itself. He's more of a manipulator versus that. I, I would say, actually, if I were to say the... MVP of the movie, I feel that Lucy Liu does a very good job in this movie. It's kind of amusing, actually, because Lucy Liu, like, a couple of years earlier, was, like, yelled at by Bill Murray while making Charlie's Angels that she can't act worth shit, you know? But I, I think, actually, her presence in this movie, at least the first one, she spoiler alert, she doesn't make it to the second one. But oh, I think that's A lot what, of them don't make it out of their movie. No. But Lucy Liu, I think, I think did a great job of like, you know, just kind of enjoying and endearing herself to the overall movie itself. The other guy, like he's not only in there for a few scenes, but he's one of those guys that I just sit there and like, it's a scene, his scene I can always watch is also Sonny Chiba as Hattori Hanzo, Hattori Hanzo. I always like love his scenes just because of his overall presence and delivery of his lines. Just, he's a martial art legend and I think he does a great job in this movie. Yes, good stuff. Now, this movie did a budget of $30 million, so definitely a lot more than that of uh, Jackie Brown. Did about 180 in the box office. Good job there. This movie did have some uh, controversies, and these controversies are more brought into light like later after the fact uh, when the movie you know came out. Uh, first, be very clear here, this movie did not get nominated for any Academy Awards. Uh, they didn't really think uh, anybody in here really stuck out for an actual performance. I probably don't disagree with that. I don't think this was a movie that showcased as much of the deep acting that's out there itself. Uh, one of the controversies that came out of this is that there was a lot of concerns about the overall safety of that was used during the film. Apparently, there was a scene where apparently Uma Thurman was hurt because I guess... Uh, Tarantino wanted her to do her own stunt. She was driving the car. She asked the stunt driver to do it, said the car and rode her safe. She lost a tree, hit a tree, had a concussion, did some damage and everything. And basically, you know, there was a lot of legal things done in the background to kind of suppress a lot of this. And essentially, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it was one of those situations which shows, and this will come out in some other scenes well, where it feels like uh, it became more of a standard that Tarantino sometimes takes liberties with some of the things that he does in his movies. We'll, I'll touch back on this a little bit later. So, All right, John. You know what came after this? I do. It's another one that I haven't seen. It isn't. It is the greatest shame you've not seen this movie. 
So after this movie, uh, <clears throat> actually, it's not the one you – this one you haven't seen. I, I haven't seen either one of his next two. Right. So, so the next one is the one I don't necessarily care if I see or not. Yeah. So the next one was Death Proof, where essentially it was like a split movie where half the movie was directed by – uh, it's like one segment of half movie was done by Robert Rodriguez and the other half was done by Quentin Tarantino. Essentially, the movie is a homage to like old uh, like drive-in movies that you would see in the 70s where like there was just cheap B-grade movies and that's kind of the whole vibe of it is that it's supposed to be this super cheesy movie. And the Tarantino side of it is this. Like uh, the two movies that you had in there Death Proof is one of them. The other one in Grindhouse is Planet Terror, which is basically about almost like zombies, military, and all this other stuff. I I didn't really care for Planet Terror. Death Proof was about a weird psycho stuntman who tries murdering women in weird ways. And it has Kurt Russell as the stuntman who's doing this. It actually has an interesting cast because you have Kurt Russell in there as stuntman, stuntman Mike, uh, Rosario Dawson's in there, uh, Rose McGowan's in there, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's in there. Uh, you have uh, Zoe Bell, who's a stunt actress that's in the movie, who's playing herself. It is as movies go. This movie is weird. All right, John, it is weird. You haven't seen it. John, if I were to say what's Quentin Tarantino's number one fetish, what would you say it is? It's feet. Oh, fuck yes. And it is very much on display in this movie. Like, all of, like, Tarantino's weird hangups and fetishes with, like, feet and torturing women and, I don't know, like, stuntmen. It, this seems like we're, like, almost Tarantino wrote a weird fanfic movie and said, I'm just going to take all these things I kind of like, I'm going to put them in this movie. I don't give a shit what anybody says. Pretty much. he's just <laughs> It's just coming out there pretty much, and like I'm making this movie. And I, I yeah, I, I'm not going to linger on this movie too much. The movie like had a budget of $30 million, box office $30.7 million. So <laughs> It made a profit. <laughs> it, it made a profit. The reception was... So, so, you know, some people understood what Tarantino was trying to do. He's trying to emulate a style of movies from the seventies and everything. And, uh, yeah, I mean, much like kill bill. I mean, this is something where, you know, he's paying homage to a different, you know, this, those cheesy 70 horror slasher movies that, that, you know, and if that's your thing, maybe this is a great movie. Well, and he tries like emulating like the driving movie style to a T where like there's parts where you could tell like scenes were cut out, like because like whoever was working the film projector and made some mistakes here or there. The movie is not a very coherent movie because it almost feels like there's the first one third to one half of the movie, which is a completely different part movie than the second two thirds of the movie itself. I I don't even know how to explain it, but it's like first half of the movie or quarter of the movie is establishing how Stuntman Mike is kind of a weird psycho. He has a stunt car that he has designed where the only person that will survive in a crash is him because of designed as a stuntman. It's a weird cliche, and 
he kills a woman because uh, he drives and crashes and she flies through the windshield and dies. And then you fast forward to where there's a different group of people, but they catch the eye of Stuntman Mike. And there's drunk Mary Elizabeth, Elizabeth Wondestad that's in a cheerleader outfit. outfit. And, hey, she, you can see her feet. And then there's women you know, recklessly endangering their lives. And I, I don't really like this movie, John. Yeah, you're not alone there from what I understand. I... Honestly, like the best thing that came out of the Grindhouse collaboration between uh, Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino, you can find it on YouTube, John. I so in the between the two movies, they had like a Thanksgiving thing. Yeah, the fake previews. There's actually like four or five movie previews. One of them was Thanksgiving. That right there is just downright hilarious. But uh, Death Proof, not 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 so much. Give it a pass. Moving on. So, Death Proof was just more of a side project for Tarantino. Not really a serious release, but I'm counting it because he did actually direct the movie itself. It's one of his ten, supposedly. So It is. So, out of that, two years later, he would release a movie. Uh, this movie is is probably amazing, in my opinion. It is fantastic. It is a movie that does so many things like well. This is the best way I can explain Inglorious Bastards to you, John, is imagine that Tarantino is able to finally harness his sense of humor, his sense of action, but actually is able to put amazing acting in the movie itself. And he balances it out, actually. He finds a way to balance it all out. And is I feel that Inglorious Bastards is one of his most balanced movies ever. And because of that, the movie is greatly successful for it. Yeah, this is one I somehow didn't see this when it came out and haven't yet. Um, I imagine just based on everything I've heard and the little clips I have seen it, this probably would be top of my list of, you know, when we get to it later, ones I see. So I'll have to... I'll have to put that on the short list of things to watch as I catch up with stuff in the next few weeks here. This is also one of Tarantino's movies that received the most amount of nominations for a Tarantino movie. This movie was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, which was won by Christopher Waltz, Best Screenplay, Cinematography, all the other technical ones in there. But, you know, as movies go, this this one was one. The premise of this movie... It's almost an alternate retelling of events of World War II. And it revolves around a group of individuals known as the Inglorious Bastards. And they're individuals that are seeking to do nothing but hurt Nazis. Again, homage to old like World War II movies in this style and sense in there. It has Brad Pitt cast in there as Lieutenant Aldo Rain. Brad Pitt has one of the most weirdest, most cheesiest accents ever as he's playing some guy from like the old, like, you know, mountains of like the South and everything. But he plays it off to a point where it's great. Uh, you have Melanie Laurent as Shoshana. Amazing. She does a fantastic movie in job in the movie itself and does great. Christopher Waltz. This is the movie that put Christopher Waltz on the map. His performance as Hans Landa is probably one of the best movie performances out of any Quentin Tarantino movie possible. 
I mean, his ability to command the screen is fantastic. And then you have the rest of the bastards where some other well-known ones in there. Eli Roth is in there, the director. Michael Fassbender is in there. And Fassbender is amazing as well. You know, you have, you know, also other individuals in there like B.J. Novak, which, you know, you can recognize him from The Office. Uh, you have uh, Daniel Brühl is in there, of course. Uh, Baron Helmet Zero or <laughs> Zemo, as an example, he's in the movie as well. Uh, John, I I don't want to say much about this movie because I know you haven't seen it, but I we're gonna I'll I'll spoil something right off the bat. I have no restrictions saying that this is Tarantino's best movie in my eyes. Yeah, this is like I said, this is one I definitely need to to you know. Take off the list of, you know, movies that John finally watched, which we haven't done in a while. So um, we probably won't come back to it if I do watch it. But, uh, yeah, and that, that's what I keep hearing is just how amazing this is. I don't, I don't know how I missed it when it came out. Like, I definitely heard of it and everything, but just never got around to watching it. I think what makes this movie very sneaky, too, like, there's various things in here. Like, this is one of those weird movies, as an example, where like you can hear a David Bowie song in the movie, and it seems out of place, but it seems just right. But uh, it's an interesting war movie. It's, again, a series of different segments that you'll have in there. And, I, again, like some of the movie plays off as kind of light humor. Some of it, it does have some of Tarantino's trademark over-the-top, like, you know, action. But I think the acting scenes in the movie alone are probably some of the best acting scenes that Tarantino has ever had in any of his movies. Um, this came out in uh, 2009. Uh, the budget on this one was $70 million, Much higher budget, much, much bigger. This one made $321 million. So I think it was kind of successful. It did all right. It did, it did okay. It, it did all right. I... I think this movie kind of did a few different things. It built uh, the relationship with Tarantino with Brad Pitt, and Tarantino would use Brad Pitt again in one of his later movies. Uh, Christopher Waltz became a breakout in this movie, and he's appeared in a lot of different things and also in other Tarantino movies. Michael Fassbender, amazing role in there. He doesn't have a big role in the movie, but what he does do is fantastic for the most part. Uh, going back to what I mentioned earlier, there is a scene in here Again, I don't want to spoil it, where Tarantino, uh, there's a scene where somebody is being choked. And apparently during the filming, Tarantino, there's feet in there too that's displayed during the scene. And apparently Tarantino did not trust uh, the actor to do it, so he did the choking himself to the point where he actually choked out the person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this. Tarantino makes good movies, but... There are those weird sides to Tarantino, and this is one of those weird sides right there where it's like, uh, like if you were, yeah. if you were to like, apparently he's gotten you know fairly religious, you know, and a few, a few other things later in his life, but he's also one of those guys like we kind of all joke about as like his whole foot fetish and everything. But if you were also to come out and like say, hey, did you hear that? Like Quentin Tarantino can only get erect if like you know he's looking at picture of ducks. I'm like. Yeah, that probably adds up. <laughs> that 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 tracks. I can I can easily see why Tarantino would be like that. Yeah, he's he's got some quirks. So that's the funny thing is this is actually one of the movies I would love to talk about the most, John. 
but I don't want to spoil it for you. Yeah, well, maybe we can do a John finally watched episode of it when I watch it, and then you can you can cut loose. Yes, I can. I'll do that and something else. Maybe I, maybe one of the other movies on here. We can do a Quentin Tarantino John finally watched. I yeah, we could do this and Once Upon a Time. There we go. Because I would be very curious about your opinions on that. I would also say that the opening scene of this movie is probably one of the best opening scenes out of any of Tarantino's movies. Nice. All right. So, sorry, guys. We're going to give you some blue balls by not going too much in depth on Inglorious Bastards. But it's good. Uh, it is good. And you've probably seen it, unlike me. Probably. So, after uh, Inglorious Bastards, um, we go into a almost a different era. Like, a lot of, like... Uh, Tarantino's movies, while the topic may not show it, you can tell that there is a lot of uh, Western influences. And by Western, I mean Western movies. And he decides, hey, you know what? Next movie, I want to make a Western movie. And he does. In 2012, he makes Django Unchained. So, what are what are your thoughts on Django? Um, I like this one. I don't have a lot of like lingering thoughts on this. It was good. Um, not my favorite. You know, it's you know of his movies, kind of kind of middling. I know this one got a lot of critical acclaim. I you know I don't I'm not sure off the top of my head what it was nominated for, if anything, for Oscars. Um, but it was good. I know you know Leonardo DiCaprio does a good job playing just a you know horrible person. Um, playing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Playing. Yeah, that's the ticket. Um, Christopher Walls, I think, isn't he like Django's sidekick in this one? Or his I, companion, I should say, sidekick. I would say, right. I would say his mentor. Yeah, I mean, he does a good job, obviously. I mean, this, you know, being the follow-up to Glorious Bastards, it's, it's, like I said, I think it's, it's good, but not, you know, in my eyes, at least not his best work, you know? I, uh, I would disagree. I think Django is a... I think it's a natural progression from Inglorious Bastards where I think you finally see where Tarantino starts learning more restraint and I think he's able to focus his movies more. And because of that focus, maybe the movie doesn't seem as memorable, but it doesn't make it, I think, any less acted than any other movies. And I think it's actually, again, another good example of it being such a well-acted movie itself. Uh, the premise of Django Unchained is about uh, a slave who is liberated by Christopher Waltz's character. Uh, the slave being Django Freeman, Jamie Foxx. He's liberated by Christopher Waltz, who is a bounty hunter. And uh, Christopher Waltz's bounty hunter, Dr. King Schultz, he liberates Django to try to find some people, bounty that he was looking for that Django would have knowledge about. And after doing what they have to do. He then, of course, mentors Django into, like, helping him with various, like, bounties until Django gets on to the point of trying to find his former, you know, girlfriend, lover, wife, and it's almost then becomes, you know, kind of that right there. It's actually Django and Chain, I would say, is almost two movies, in my opinion. The first half of the movie and the second half of the movie is almost like a First act and second act. Matter of fact, the one thing that I loved about this movie is that, now, John, me and you, we saw this in the theater together. I think so, yes. What was the one thing that was unique about this movie? 
I th- if it's what I think you're talking about, I think it was actually Hateful Eight that had it. Are you talking about the intermission? Oh, the intermission was in Django, too. Oh, did Django have one as well? Yes. Ah, okay. Because I remember it being in Hateful Eight for sure. I don't remember the one in Django. Yes, there was actually an intermission in the movie itself, which I thought was actually... It's clever, and honestly, when you consider, like, even when you think about how many Marvel movies now run, like, two hours and 40 minutes, I almost sit there and think, man, some of these movies could use breaks. It goes back to what I was almost kind of saying as an example where, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, bringing my kids to the movies, and, like, one of them has to use the restroom itself. It's almost where, like, I wish more movies did that sort of thing. I thought it was a nice touch to it because this movie – it, it runs pretty long. Uh, this is 165 minutes, so it almost runs like a little short of like three hours. That's why you put an actual intermission in the movie itself. Yeah, it would be nice to see a few more of those. I mean, give you a chance to kind of, you know, collect yourself, maybe if need be, go to the bathroom, maybe refresh your, you know, snacks, beverage, whatever, and just kind of stretch your legs. And, and, you know, it gives you a moment to, like I said, kind of reflect, okay, what's going on here? Where do I think this is going? And then, you know, come back in and catch the rest of it and you know you're slightly refreshed so you know music wise again i think that tarantino is kind of very spot on with some of the music choices he did in here i thought it definitely fleshed out the movie itself he had a few songs in there which i thought did a great job casting so the lead was jamie fox do you know who originally was uh, offered the role of django i think i've heard but i don't recall right at the moment it was will smith and Will Smith uh, turned it down because he thought the movie was too fi- violent and would hurt his image. And honestly, it's funny because Will I, Smith... Ironic considering how things turned out. <laughs> well, that's the weird thing about Will Smith and Jamie Foxx, is that I feel that Jamie Foxx, if I were to compare his career to Will Smith, Will Smith probably has definitely much more block box, uh, box office movies than uh, Jamie Foxx. But Jamie yes. Foxx, I think, is so much more well-respected than Will Smith in terms of, like, a lot of... Yeah, I think he he's does. he's more where, yeah, where Will Smith is more your blockbuster. He's the guy you want to go to for your summer movie, your action movie, whereas, you know, Jamie Foxx is more like an actor's actor. Like, he's the guy you're going to go to if you want something done done and done well and, like, you know, taken... I, I hate to use the word taken seriously because I think Will Smith does take his job seriously, but I think... They're they're just different types of actors, I think, and I th- I think this turned out probably better for having Jamie Foxx than having Will Smith in it. Right. I mean, you, you know, Jamie Foxx's first, I think, serious role you would consider to be any given Sunday, you know, and then after that, you know, he was in Ray, got some definite critical and award acclaim for that. You know, he's done like a weird series of action movies. I think the difference though is that between a uh, Jamie Foxx and Will Smith. Jamie Foxx does movies that he'll sit there and enjoy, where I feel that like Will Smith is more about protecting his brand. Yeah, protecting his brand, and is this something that, you know, people are going to quote-unquote, like, enjoy? Is this going to be, like, a crowd-pleaser, basically? You know, like, how, is this going to make a lot of people, you know, appreciate my work and enjoy themselves, whereas Jamie Foxx is, like, more like, you know, hey, this looks interesting, I'll give this a shot, or something like that. You know, he's more... More willing to take a risk than I think Will Smith is. Well, and I'd say this is I'm not saying that Jamie Foxx's career has been flawless. He's had some movies that have kind of dudded out at various points. 
But, you know, when I sit there and if you were to sit there and say, what movie you'd rather watch, a Will Smith movie or a Jamie Foxx movie, without knowing what the movie's about, I would say Jamie Foxx. You know, that, yeah. is, that is immediately where I would kind of, you know, jump into at that point. You know, uh, for Jamie Foxx, looking at uh, some of the movies that he was in or versus Will Smith. I mean, Will Smith, that guy used to be the king of the blockbusters. You know, he had Bad Boys, blockbuster. Independence Day, blockbuster. Men in Black, blockbuster. Wild Wild West, whoa, well, well, we'll hold back a second <laughs> oh, well, here. Yeah, roll back on that let's, one. Let's hold back on that right there. He did The Legend of Bagger Vance. I thought he was actually good in that. Uh, but, you know, I think where Will Smith, like, once he hit the range of, like, making, I don't know, Hitch and Hancock around there, that's when, like, you know, he's just started doing this weird spiral in terms of how his movies all worked out. So, and then he started putting his kids in his movies and, yeah. yeah. Let's not let's not linger on Will Smith. Let's go back to good old Django and Shane. So, Christopher Waltz, Breakthrough, won an Academy Award for the movie. Rightfully so. Good job, Christopher Waltz. Leonardo DiCaprio was in this, and this also is the first collaboration that uh, Tarantino had with DiCaprio, which we'd use him again. One thing that was impressive, so you remember the scene in the movie where, like, Leo shatters a glass in his hand? Yes, and I know the little story you're about to talk about. Yeah, that was legit. He actually broke that glass in his hand, and he kept rolling with that whole scene, even yep. with the bloody hand. And everybody gave even him, like, a standing ovation yep. after that. Yep. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's in the movie. Again, another collaboration with him. Uh, not his strongest role. I, I was okay. Walter no, Goggins. yeah, it was fine, but nothing nothing to write home about. Walter Goggins was in the movie, and he would also end up in the next movie for Tarantino as well. What are your thoughts on Walter Goggins? I like him. I don't think he's not always great, but, I mean, he's one, you know, when I see him show up in a movie, I'm not, you know, I'm not bad. I'm curious to see where he does. I feel like he's. He has a he, type. He, yeah, definitely. Um, kind of a smarmy, you know sleazy oily bad guy type thing uh don johnson was in this movie i thought don johnson was actually pretty good in this yeah didn't is this the one where he played like a clansman or something uh he was both a clansman as well as a plantation owner that's right yep uh who is the mvp of this movie um i think you got to give it to jamie fox i think I mean, there's a lot of good. I mean, him, him, Waltz, and DiCaprio are all pretty great, but I think without him being the centerpiece, I don't think the rest have as much to work with. <sighs> it's hard. I go back and forth between Fox, Waltz, and DiCaprio. I barely give DiCaprio the edge, but I feel it like DiCaprio is having the most fun with this movie. I think this is different because DiCaprio is actually playing a bad guy, which I don't think he's really done yeah. much before. And you can tell that he is enjoying playing a bad guy in this movie, and he's just chewing the hell out of the scenery. Yeah, he he does a great job in his, you know, whatever his name, Candy or whatever it is, as just a evil jerky guy. Like you said, you can tell he's enjoying himself, and he does a great job with it. Yeah. So this movie... You know, did a great job. I mean, a hundred million budget, four hundred twenty-six million box office. Yeah. So Didn't this, this this was nominated for best picture, I think, wasn't it? But didn't win it. 
Uh, hang on a second here. Down the wormhole again. Well, it's not down the wormhole. Actually, I've been pretty Johnny on the spot when it comes to most of the information on all of this right here. So Django here, uh, for Academy Awards, five nominations. Not as much as uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, But uh, Best Picture was nominated. Waltz did win Best Supporting Actor in this. So that's a, that's a twofer for him. Another Oscar for Tarantino for Best Screenplay. And then some of the technical ones. Yeah. So, yeah. Good I, stuff. Yeah, Django, I think, definitely was where he started getting into more of the Westerns. And that's good because his next movie would be The Hateful Eight. Yes. Again, another movie that's definitely in the Western genre. Also another movie that is long as hell. Um, so depending the basic release is 168 minutes there is a roadshow release which is 187 minutes and then Netflix has a version of it where they kind of split it up into a mini series which is 210 minutes god damn I watched that one actually um, I would like to, I would like to watch that one what what are your thoughts on Hateful Eight? I actually really enjoyed this one. This one, I, I don't remember as many specifics about it, but I remember really enjoying it in the theater. It's got a different, like it's a Western like Django Unchained, but it's got a very different feel to it. It's got kind of almost a, you know, what do they call those? Like a locked room mystery or locked house mystery or something yeah, like that. It, you've got it's a definitely set, a whodunit kind of movie. Yeah, you've, you've got a set cast of characters. Like the cast on this one is not nearly as big as a lot of his other movies. Um, but they all do great job with it. You know, the the setting is great. I, the music in this one is different, I think, than in his other ones, too. Like, this one, he got some very oh. uh, classic... Um, I forget... I can't think of the guy's name, but he's like Ennio a very... Mer- Ennio Mericone, the guy who did the yes. soundtrack to the Clint Eastwood movies, like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, I want to say, this was, was this one of the last... This was one of the last ones he did before he died, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, like, the soundtrack is just friggin' amazing, as you would expect. Um so this one I really enjoyed. This is one I, I was out of all the ones on this movie, aside from like *Inglorious Bastards*, I'd like to go back and revisit. Which is why, like I said, I should almost go back, go on Netflix, and check out that extended miniseries version of it. Because this one I really dug, and I'd like to kind of go back and check it out and see it again. Because I think I did only see it the one time in theaters. Yeah, this one, 168 minutes. Now this one also had an intermission as well during the movies as well. It's the same length actually as almost *Django* as well. So it's. It's up there in runtime itself. This movie, I think, is unique in a lot of different ways because it's his second consecutive of almost the same, I would say, style and genre, where kind of almost an older Western style movie itself, but also a movie, you know, as what well, a movie thriller. Honestly, like, have you ever seen like Death on the Nile? No, that newer version that came out a couple years ago, I kind of wanted to see, but just never got around to it. I watched it. It, it was okay, but Hateful Late, I feel, is a much better in terms of like mystery movie in some ways compared to how that one is. But, yeah, and I almost feel like almost more than a Western. I mean, this is obviously definitely a Western, but I think there's almost more his take on the mystery genre just in a different setting that you don't usually see it in. Right. So the premise of this movie, it's, uh, you know, some post-war, you know, bounty hunters and one of them encounters another on the road is they both have bounties that they're trying to catch on, but there's a blizzard that's on their tails. So they take refuge in a sort of a, you know, kind of a, you know, 
speakeasy bar slash you know store and they realize things there may not be as it seems and then it becomes the kind of a situation where somebody dies and then it's trying to determine who can they trust out of everybody that's in that room and the movie again it follows a linear path until it doesn't later in the movie it kind of goes in the non-linear range it kind of helps set up and backtrack and the things that went up for that it's an interesting movie in the sense that again this is a very much and i think again this is i feel this started with uh inglorious bastards it went through django and it goes through here this is where like tarantino has mastered the art of character driven movies and i think the difference is is that his first half of his career they were dialogue driven movies this is where i think he's learned how to get the most out of his actors to deliver the lines and it turn, takes it to a different level um the casting he has for this we have Samuel L. Jackson in here, and he's definitely a prominent character. Kurt Russell, again, another previous Tarantino player is in there. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is in there. Guess what? Uh, Walton Goggins, there's his uh, second appearance. Tim Roth returns to uh, Tarantino, you know, as well as Michael Madsen. You know, a good overall cast of individuals that are in this movie, and I, I don't... I'll fast forward to a question I've asked already. If I were to say who the MVP of this movie is, that's a hard one right there. They There is so many different people that bring a lot of things to the table. Yeah, I feel like this one, I mean, and I mean, maybe it's because there is such a smaller cast, like everybody has more of a chance to kind of spread their wings and just doing a great job. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson's amazing. It's Kurt Russell. I mean, the whole, the whole cast, I mean, there's not really a stinker in there. So, I mean, it's tough to say... You know, and again, it's been a while since I've seen it. I, you know, even like, like give it to Kurt Russell. Even Jen, but, uh, I would give it to Jennifer Jason Lee. I feel that she did an amazing job when, especially when you consider who she was like acting up against in that movie itself. And I feel that she did everything possible to stick out in that movie. Yeah, yeah, she did a great job. I mean, there's like I said, there's not a bad one in the bunch. I mean, even Channing Tatum, who you would think like in a movie like this would just stick out like a sore thumb, um, did pretty decent as well. Now, with this particular movie, uh, to your point, uh, this had three Academy Award nominations. Uh, Best Supporting Actress, Jennifer Jason Lee, nominated, didn't win. Best Cinematography, but didn't win. Best Original Score, and Neil Coney won it. So nice. near the end of his career, he won another award and did a great job in that movie itself. Uh, this one budget was around 40, uh, 44 to 62 million. The reason why the budgets fluctuate in terms of numbers is because they had different versions of this movie and they kind of retooled it when they brought it back out for Netflix as well. This one only made 156 million. It made about half as less money as Django. Maybe part of the reason why is because I don't know, lack of star power. I think this is one. Yeah, this one just didn't seem to have the buzz that Django did. Like, I remember when Django Chin Chain came out, like, everybody was talking about it, it had all the Oscar buzz. And this one kind of flew under the radar for some reason. I don't know if it was because it was the second Western for him in a row or... Well, did you hear about the controversy of this movie? Which one is that? I might have. So, Tarantino wrote this. Um, The script was leaked in... He said that with the script leaked, he would not actually film this movie. He was very, very irate and upset about this. There I don't is, remember that. So he almost didn't make this movie. 
there was only like so many people that had the script to the movie, and it was under the belief that Michael Matson maybe have been the one that slipped the script that uh, got out, and once that uh, script was essentially you know out, he just did not want to make the movie at that point. He was just irate. He felt mad. He felt betrayed. And he almost thought about writing it as a book. And he didn't. Huh. He kind of sat there, thought about it. And eventually, he kind of revisited it to it. And he realized, no, I, I want to make this. So he kind of rewrote the movie, kind of made some different versions out there, too. So that way, if it's leaked again, that would... uh kind of get out there and he originally when he uh rewrote the script more actors are in there because originally in the movie uh samuel l jackson and kirk russell are not even in the movie or consideration for the movie early on in the first version of the script the second script version is when they joined on itself so this movie almost didn't even get made and really put quentin tarantino off so there was definitely i think a lot of you know vitriol behind the movie and maybe that's why the nobody got behind this movie as much just because there was a little bit more drama that was going on in the background itself yeah could be um yeah it's hard to say why this one didn't take off like you know his previous few movies did you think after inglorious bastards and Django and chain that you know third one on the road would have done a heck of a lot better than than that it did well consider this i mean this movie came out in 2015 it's a different period of time almost in some ways too. I think the hard thing is, is that as time has gone on, everything around him in the entertainment industry, I mean, you think about what the biggest movies were around that period of time. It was all superhero movies. It was all Marvel. There was a lot more of that, which was the bigger go-to thing for entertainment. So he was kind of competing against like, you know, around 2015, I think that was when, uh, uh, Force Awakens came out. That was when uh, Force Awakens came out. Yep. That that was exactly right around that same time of the year. But even earlier in the year, you had uh, what was it? Uh, it was Avengers: Age of Ultron. You think you had Guardians around that time? You had a lot of other things where the movie paradigm was kind of really shifting into a different direction. And I think, yeah, and that, and that could be the issue. It was just that. People were going to movies more like, yeah, like Star Wars, Marvel movies, stuff like that, the big superhero stuff, and weren't weren't going to this type of thing. And streaming, I think, was a little bit more of a thing, too. I don't know. I don't know. It quite wasn't what it was today, but, like, I think, you know, people were definitely watching stuff at home at that point, too. Yeah, I, it just had, a, I think, a lot, a lot more different environment that it had to go up against compared to, like, all of his other previous movies. It was... The movie industry changed. He was still making a great product. I just think that the people that were out there to receive it, there was like his audience was going in different directions. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a great movie, but just, yeah, it didn't go over as well for whatever reason, at least box office wise. And this is going to bring us to our most recent Tarantino movie. Hey, John, we're at the one hour, 54 minute mark. Oh, such an epically long episode. <laughs> Supersized, everybody, just for you. Supersized for you. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, this is almost the movie that made me think about doing a Tarantino podcast and make me wonder why I haven't done one before now. 
Remember earlier in the episode when I mentioned about getting stars and seeing Clerks 3, the shittiest movie of all time? Yes, I might recall that. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was on stars. I'm like, man, I haven't seen that for a while. And I watched that. And after watching that, it is one of the most curious Tarantino films ever made. It is weirdly unique. I, I'll explain the plot here, John. The movie <laughs> focuses on uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's actor character, Rick Dalton. So he Rick Dalton is a character in the movies who was in various TV westerns and eventually, you know, would go on to do spaghetti westerns. And it's about his stuntman, which is played by Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt plays his stuntman. And it's about them being in a Hollywood as Hollywood is starting to change. It's the evolution of Hollywood and how two guys that were from a different era evolve into a new area. But on top of that, John, this also kind of like how uh, Inglorious Bastards does a different take on World War II history. The other thing that's a backdrop to this movie is also the Manson murders of Sharon Tate, which is also reimagined in a different way. So it's really talking about so many, the movie is about so many different cultural shifts, shifts from an actor perspective to what was going on around that time. John, this movie is just, I can't explain it sometimes. I mean, I know (laughs) I just told you what the movie was about, but when you watch the movie, you're sitting there, and if again, if you were to say, what's the plot of the movie, I gave you the most simplified version of the movie possible I could. But even like then, it's not touching on a lot of different aspects of what this movie's about. It's that surreal of a movie. Nice. Now, this movie would have DiCaprio and Pitt, both previous you know workers from you know Tarantino films, Margot Robbie's in the movie itself, and there's just then a wide you know assortment of different actors and actresses in the movie itself. Now, this movie came out 2019. Uh, came out just prior to, you know, six months, seven months prior to the pandemic, you know, affecting how movies were done and made. This one, budget, $90 million, and did a box office of 377 So this movie, definitely a lot more than what Hateful Eight did. I'll say the thing that maybe probably brought the attention to this is when you have a movie that has DiCaprio, Pitt, and Robbie in there, that's definitely going to bring a lot more people into the theaters. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes Hateful Eight stand out more as a weird anomaly for its box office. But yeah, like you said, when you've got three of the prime actors of the time, you know, in one movie, and it's Tarantino, I think it's, you know, it's not too hard to see why it did, you know, did as well as it did. Yeah, it's it's definitely an amazingly different movie. It is also, in my opinion, Tarantino's most subdued movie. This movie is amazingly subdued until you get to the last 15 minutes, 15, last 15, 20 minutes, like, Oh, it's quitting again. But before that you're sitting there and it is again, a movie that follows the trend of his previous three movies where it's a lot more character based movie and how he does it. Um, with this particular movie itself, I'll say this, uh, you haven't seen it. The MVP of this movie, hands down Brad Pitt, (laughs) 
Brad Pitt's character is the stuntman Cliff Booth. I could just watch an entire movie about Brad Pitt playing Cliff Booth. He is that great in this movie. He's hands down easily the MVP. The uh, least valuable player, Margot Robbie, actually. She doesn't, she's a big face in a picture in the movie itself, but I don't think she has the impact that she could have in it. I yeah, remember. which is unfortunate because she's, you know, she's a solid, solid actress. Also weird enough, uh, Kevin Smith's daughter, Harley Quinn Smith, is in this movie. Again, bringing things full circle to what we brought, talked about <laughs> earlier. It all comes back around. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, Kurt Russell is in the movie uh, bit role as well as a narrator. Zoe Bell, who is a previous stuntwoman on so many different movies for uh, Tarantino, also in the movie as well. Maya Hawk is in this movie from Stranger Things. Uh, Lena Dunham is in this movie, if you like Lena Dunham. Somebody does. Al Pacino is in this movie. Uh, Damian Lewis, Luke Perry, Dakota Fanning, Timothy Oliphant. I mean, there's just a lot of actually good, well-named individuals in the movie itself. Um, With this movie, I would watch it, John, and when you watch it, it's a movie that is weird because it sticks out a lot of his as his movies. It is a very rewatchable movie because I feel like the few time you know watching it again, like about a week ago, there's a lot of things I didn't notice in the movie the first time around, and it's like, oh yeah, that's there, and that oh wait, there's that, and it is definitely one of his more layered movies in terms of depth and everything else. But it did well. Um, from an Academy Award standpoint, I stand corrected. This movie was actually his best nominated one, where it was nominated, had a total of 10 nominations in the movie. Uh, it was Best Picture, uh, did not win. Best Director, Tarantino, did not win. Best Actor, DiCaprio, did not win. Best Supporting Actor, Brad Pitt, he did win. Nice. Again, a testimony to how great he was in this movie. Screenplay, no win, and then we get to all the technical ones. But again, a very well received movie, and I think you'll see that as the trend is that his as his career's gone on, he's definitely getting a lot more recognition and accolades from a lot of the various academies and awards, you know, groups out there. And I think again that shows that he's just growing and refining himself as an actual writer and director. It. It, I didn't I didn't attend this this way, but it's a weird parallel where you consider Tarantino to Kevin Smith. Both were doing game-changing things in the 90s. The difference is that Tarantino grew, and he grew well as he went later in his career, where Kevin Smith made Clerks 3 and made me want to hate life. <laughs> yes, he did. So I I would say it's a very interesting movie to watch. I would do it. It is apparently his second to last movie into whatever his last movie is that comes out if he does stick to his guns on that right there. Now, on a side note, other things that uh, Tarantino has done that he did not direct. Our criteria that we had for this episode are things that he has directed and written. Uh, he also uh, was the writer from Dustal Dawn, Robert Rodriguez. He was the one that did the directing in the movie itself. Interesting movie, kind of a weird kind of 
B-grade horror movie that you'll find, let's say, for the mid-90s itself. He had a section that was in the four-segment uh, movie, Four Rooms, where there was only two good parts of the movie and then two really bad parts of the movie itself. Uh, Robert Rodriguez's part with Antonio Bandera is clearly the best part of the movie itself. He contributed to Natural Born Killers. You know, he contributed uh, some guest directing to Sin City. You know, he's 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 had a very solid career, to say the least. So, John, this, this brings us to the pinnacle of this supersized podcast. And that pinnacle is simple. Let us rank Tarantino's movies. Now... John, we have to do this differently. You know why? Because you haven't seen them all. Correct. So I'll let you go first, and then after that I will go because I've seen them all. Yeah, so, sorry. It's starting at the bottom for me. Um, I think I'm going with Django Unchained. Um, you know, talk about I don't want to spend that too much. Just good. And all these, like I said, all these are good movies, but that's just for me the – the one I enjoyed the least after that or next up is Reservoir Dogs, which some people might take some umbrage with. Again, great movie, but that's just where I put it. Um, I've got Kill Bill after that, and I might actually flip that. You know, like if I were to rewatch these tomorrow, I might actually flip Kill Bill and Reservoir Dogs. But I just remember enjoying uh, Kill Bill just kind of just it's, you know, the way it was more than Reservoir Dogs. But again, I might flip those. Uh, Hateful Eight I've got at number two. Um and then I've got Pulp Fiction up at number one. And again, I might flip those. Those as well. Those are kind of neck and neck for me. Uh, Pulp Fiction, for obvious reasons, Hateful Eight, I just really enjoyed. And, you know, maybe after I rewatch it, I'll like it even more. All right. My rankings. Having seen them all. At I'm the done. bottom. At the bottom. No surprise. Death Proof. That, yeah. That movie was just... As I said, it was every Tarantino fetish that was put on the big screen, <laughs> done on a right, ironically. The one after this, this one's going to shock you, John. Next one up oh. after that, Kill Bill. Yeah, I so, mean yes, but no. Like I, I know, like I've got it up there, kind of high, but I'm aware that that's kind of I'm more the anomaly than you. I think the trick with Kill Bill, why I have it rated so low, is this: it is that it is. It's a good action movie, but the character work in there is probably some of the most <laughs> inferior character work compared to any of his other movies at this point. Uh, after that one, I have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I have that above Kill Bill because it is a better character-driven movie versus Kill Bill. And frankly... It's almost like a more interesting movie. It's fascinating watching the movie because I think the one thing it does better than what Kill Bill does, it does make you invested in the characters in the movie. You do care about these characters. You're very curious and you're invested in what they do and how their lives go. And I think that's even like watching Kill Bill. I never sat there and thought, yeah, I'm really thinking, go bride, go. I never really thought about that at all uh after that i have jackie brown as i said it's a different type of movie i think you know i think jackie brown is where quentin tarantino early on tried getting more into character work after pulp fiction and i don't think it worked because he just didn't have it quite down yet and i think he mastered that later on in his career uh after jackie brown i have hateful eight 
I think an overall good, solid movie, good cast, everything else. Uh, I mean, I have that in the middle of the pack right there. I don't think it's a bad movie. You know, I don't think it's his best, but I think it's definitely a solid movie. After Hateful Eight, then I got Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Reservoir Dogs is, I think, you know, amazing when you consider that it is one of his earliest, you know, his first big movies, and it shows, like, how much potential he had, and it's such a great job by some of the actors in there. After Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. I think Pulp Fiction I have as number three at this point. Again, it's such a legendary movie, quoted way so much and everything. Maybe I think part of it, why I don't have it as number one, is I feel as I get older, I feel that my view of movies has changed. I can see why back in 1994, like 17, 18-year-old me would have loved that movie because it was so different. It would have brought to the table an 18-year-old would eat that shit up without a doubt. I think now, looking almost 30 years later at this point watching this movie, it's still a good movie, but I also feel that my sensibilities have kind of changed. And looking at the movie itself, it's good, but it's it's diminished maybe just because the, the best example I can use, John, is like Metallica's Black Album. Is it a bad album? No. But you've seen it and heard it so much that everything's diminished because of that. Because there's been so many of the songs on that album that have been played on the radio, you kind of take it more for granted and it doesn't hit the same way anymore just because of that right. overexposure. Uh, we go to the number two movie. And the number two movie I have on there is Django. I think Django was one of the best follow-ups possible to my number one movie. Again, I, I know that you had some, you know, it didn't connect with or hit you with you as much. But again, I just see that there's so many different elements of movie making and character driven, you know, aspects of the movie itself that I think is just amazing, which then it goes to the number one. Inglorious Bastards, I think that's the movie that showed that Quentin Tarantino has the ability to be amazing director and actor i don't think anybody's had any doubts about that before but i think that's where he he learned how to actually instead of like go for the shock value anymore he kind of realized hey i can just write amazing scenes and he does i would argue that the best scene out of any of the movies that he has ever had is either the opening to inglorious bastards or the bar scene in Inglorious Bastards. Both of those absolutely amazing. And that is my ratings, John. Nice. Well played, sir. Well played. Man, two hours, ten minutes, John. God, people are sick of us at this point. I told you, this was going to be a supersized yeah. episode, John. I know we... I mean, I'm, I'm kind of sick of us. <laughs> I am, but... <laughs> but, I mean, that. I think this was... This was Perfect. This is kind of what I wanted to do is that like, you know, thinking about it, it's been almost seven years since I started podcasting. It's like, you know what? Let, let's talk about like Tarantino, just because the fact that how much he has like had an influence on filmmaking, everything else, the person himself, he's maybe just an absolute weirdo in so many different ways, but you take that out of the equation right there. I mean, 
he's a guy that's made some amazing movies. I mean, out of all the movies that we listed there, I would say about 80, 90% of them are good. Or at least good enough. Yeah, I mean, with the exception of Death Proof. when When you're talking about directors like Scorsese and, you know, Spielberg, stuff like that. I think he definitely ranks up there. He's got a movie that when you see it, even if you didn't know it was a Quentin Tarantino movie, and, you know, if you didn't see him show up in this movie since he shows up in all of them, like, he's, his style is definitely very noticeable, very easy to pick out, and and that's not to say it's a bad thing. I think it's good to be so stylized where you can watch a lot of movies out there and be like, who the hell directed this now? It looked just like the movie I watched a couple of days ago, like, where it's it's good, I think, to have those standout directors where just watching them, you can pick out their style and, and know what it is, and and that they're so good at it, too. So this is interesting. So I just decided, you know what? I'm going to go on the, you know, Google right now, and I'm going to type in top 20 directors of the past 20 years. Now, I'm looking at the list of names on here. So one of them on there is Steven Spielberg. Uh, disagree? I, out of the last 20 years, I would have to agree that I disagree with that, like, you know, if you're going from like the 80s through the 90s, those 20 years, then yeah, probably, but not from the 2000s till now. Right. No. Uh, Scorsese. Yeah, I mean, kind of the same thing. I mean, I mean, it's it, been bad these last 20 years, but I think his best stuff is, again, probably from the 80s through the, you know, through the 90s. I mean, his best out of the past 20 years was The Departed, and he won the award for that, but I feel it was almost kind of given to him because they kind of felt bad for the fact that they didn't give him an award sooner. Right. Uh, this one I'll agree with, though. Christopher Nolan. Yeah, that guy is... Yeah. The past yeah. 20 years has been solid. Agreed. Uh, let's see here. Tarantino. Yeah, I already got that. Fincher. I I suppose Fincher has had a lot of good impact in the past 20 years. Yeah. Again, he hasn't been bad, but I feel like most of his better stuff. Well, I suppose the early two thousand, he had some stuff there too, but more nineties. But I wouldn't, you know, I would, I would grudgingly give you that one. I suppose. Uh, Clint Eastwood. Ah, his movies are kind of forgettable. Yeah, they always tend to get praised when they come out, but then once they've gone away and the Oscars are gone and the Oscar buzz is away, like everybody kind of forgets about them. Here's an interesting one: Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I mean, if you're going top twenty, I mean, he would be. Yeah, he would. I would say he's top ten. Uh, I would agree with this one, uh, Darren Aronofsky. I can never pronounce it. Yeah, name. lately he hasn't done as much lately, but he had early two thousand there. He had some. He had a lot of really solid stuff. Uh, just even taking a quick look here right now. I mean, just even look in the past ten years. Mm, I don't know. Nothing really sticks out that much. Uh, let's see. Peter Jackson. Uh, Again, the last 20 years, I, I suppose, technically the... The first, one, the first 10 years of the past 20 years, yes. The past 10 years? Yeah, not so much. Uh, Fincher. Hmm. Eh. Well, hang on here. Uh, you know what? I'll give it to Fincher. Here's the reason why. So I, I know it's easy to sit there and say, you know, hey, he had seven and he had Fight Club and everything. But other things to remember him for at this point, too. I mean, he did The Social Network. Got an you know, Oscar for that. He did Gone Girl. That was actually, you know, pretty good as movies goes. 
he did Zodiac again. Also a pretty good movie right there. So I mean, if I were to if I were to go off of those right there, yeah, he he actually did a pretty good job right there. Yeah, I'd argue with a with a resume like that. Uh, ooh, here's an interesting one. Edgar Wright. Yeah, yeah, but I think you're getting into the the lower part of the list now. I mean, he's yeah. done some good stuff, and I think he's another one kind of like Tarantino, where he's got a definite style that's a little bit easier to pick out. Yeah, I mean, if you take Nolan out of the equation right there, ooh, Zack Snyder, no. No, yeah, I would hard pass. Hard, hard, hard pass right there. So, I mean, I think that's just the nature of it all right now. As you take a look at movie making right now, like, man, sitting there thinking, like, here, here's a good question. Over the past five years, who do you consider to be one of the best directors out there? It's tough to say. I mean, there hasn't really been anyone, you know, at least in mine. I mean, I don't get into a lot of the, you know, like I, I haven't seen many of the best picture nominations or best director nom- director nominated movies, so it's tough to say. There haven't really been any, you know, for me at least, standouts. I'm sure they're out there, but none that come to mind at least. You know, one guy who's been amazingly interesting is, and I'm just curious to, you know, just see where he goes in terms of filmmaking. Because he's only been doing it for five years, but like Jordan Peele. Yeah, he's done it. I haven't seen any of his yet, but yeah, he's one that, yeah, I'll be curious to see where his his career ends up going, and I need to catch some of his stuff. I mean, you know, he's been an actor for so long, but, you know, getting into directing, you know, he's... He's done some solid things, I think. I think that's part of it is you're seeing a lot more, like, people now just transfer from, like, one industry to a different industry. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting, too, to see, you know, I mean, heck, we're probably already starting to see him. We're just not aware of it yet, is some of the directors now who are inspired by, like, Tarantino and Nolan and stuff like that and see what they start putting out in another next, you know, five to ten years or so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, movies, man. Movies. Movies. Movies, movies. Folks, we're at 2 minutes and 17. We'll start the wrap-up now so we can, can get this finished within 2.20. Yes, everybody. been an amazing trip. I'd like to thank anybody that has listened to this podcast for extensive periods of time. We greatly appreciate this. It's something we've always said you don't have to, so anytime anybody dedicates this much time to us, it's – Greatly appreciated. Uh, you know, I know we're not as frequent as we used to be. I think part of it is is like, you know, we're releasing almost a new episode every month and a half to two months is probably the pace we have. Not what I want, but I think part of it is yeah. just that we've covered so much, I think, in the course of the past, you know, three, four years or so. We could probably do more episodes like face-off episodes or John Finally Watches or our arbitrary episodes always seem to be the more common ones now, just because that's what we kind of jump back into just because it's been so long and so many things have happened. So who knows, you know, maybe as time goes on, we can get ourselves more into a more regular schedule itself, but we do appreciate when you do listen and putting up with our inane shenanigans. We do everybody. We appreciate all of you, whether you've been listening for a long time or whether this is your first episode. You've got a lot to catch up on. Yes. Thank you to all of you. So, 
as I sign off every episode. Folks, I'm Mike Spriggle. And I'm John Lundquist. Thank you for listening. Yes, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs>